You're listening to the Endless Pursuit Podcast, where we talk about all things hunting and the great outdoors. Let's get into it. No, I prefer it's go time. Welcome back, listeners. Tonight, we have a gentleman joining us who you could say he can hunt, he can catch, and he can cook. Jason Spencer from Hunt, Catch, Cook. Geez, I was good there. Original, wasn't it? That was pretty classy, Matt. (laughs) Give yourself a pat on the back. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, boys, for having us on. um, Yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Well, half looking forward to it because I've got a heap of questions to ask you. And I think you've probably got a heap of questions to ask me, but uh, it's good. It'll be good. It's going to be a laugh. I know that. There's going to be a few uh, few bits and pieces. But finally got hold of you anyway, and great. Thanks for that. Yeah, a few technical issues, but we got there. Yeah, for sure. So welcome welcome to the show. I, uh, I threw your name around when we were looking for guests and we'd you know, run out of all the good ones, so it was about time you came up. But I uh, reached out to you the other week and said, hey, Jace, you want to come on? And you... Uh, Jumped at the opportunity, so it's um, good to see you. I haven't seen you for a while. It's been a while, mate, yeah, in between COVID and, uh, you know, it's been a few years. But, yeah, I'm surprised that people don't um, get more cooking, <laughs> you know, people in the hunting industry, people like to kill everything, you know, killing. But that's pulling the trigger is only half the story. It's not even a bit of the story. The pursuit's a lot of it, um, and feeding and cooking is a hell of a lot more of it. And it's um, – I'm surprised that – yeah, there must be a lot of hungry hunters around. I'm really, I'm sure of it. But that's all right. I'm, that's good. I'm, I'm passionate about what I do, and uh, I keep saying it. I say it a lot. I say it all my podcasts, all my studio stuff, and it's um, it kind of um, reflects a little bit, I suppose. I don't know. It, it's, um, but I, I love what I do. I, I absolutely love what I do. So you say you love what you do. Just for our listeners, do you want to explain what it is you do? What is hunt, catch, cook? So hunt catch cook so yeah uh, yeah yeah good question um hunt catch cook is uh something that's happened oh, many many years ago so it started obviously mum and dad it's kind of something a little bit of something that's been passed down to me but not in that general sense of you know you should do this or we're always doing it as as kids but more of the sense of you know dad killed his own animals and so forth uh, as in on a on a hobby farm but in the latter years, uh, for me, it was more of supplying my family with meat and a cheaper cheaper way of living, I suppose you call it. And also a uh, trip to America, I did uh, that instilled it pretty much when I was uh, when I first got married, 21 years old, uh, got married, and then I waited for a little while and um, I've done a lot of FIFO work and eventually went to America to catch up with it. So that's a hell of a long story, that one. But eventually went to America to catch up with a mate. We went bear hunting. And um, he, they kind of set in my brain that if you kill something, you really should eat it. You should be utilizing that as much as you can. If you take it, then utilize it. And I started doing it and started learning a lot more about it. And it become a point where I could quite easily survive without going to a butcher shop. And it's been coming up this year's 11 years that I haven't been into a butcher shop and physically bought meat from a butcher shop. So I buy a little bit of fat every now and then, uh, some pork fat for my sausages. But um, other than that, I eat meat every night. I, I give meat away. I share meat. I've got three freezers here that are full of meat and I don't hunt a lot. I hunt on a weekly basis sort of thing. It's just like people going shopping. I get out, you know, most Sunday mornings, I call it church, and um, I hunt. I fish, I dive, I catch, um, 
and I cook it and yeah, and I, and I eat really well. As you can tell, that video is going. You can tell that I yeah, I don't miss, I don't skip many meals. Um, but and and that's what hunt catch cook is about. It's showing people how to utilize the game and fish that they catch and how to feed it to their families. And it's kind of um, escalated from there. Look, we're two fat blokes over here, Jason, as you can see. And so we do love a feed. And one of the things I've been talking about Dodge is he's probably taken that to, I guess, what you just said. You mentioned about how you eat everything that you shoot. Uh, Dodge on a previous podcast was talking about he has eaten fox. Now, I don't know if I'm a big fan of yours and what you do with your cooking, but I don't even think you could make fox taste good. And Dodge, well, I mean, just eating that, that's just... That's playing Jason's skills down a fair bit. <laughs> Fox. I mean, come on. I've eaten some of the stuff he's cooked at the shows, and, man, you could put some of them sauces on mud and you'd be licking your fingers. <laughs> oh, mate, is, this a, is this a challenge? Could we uh, – I think that's – the next Fox I get, I'm happy for Jason to whip up a sauce for you, Dodge, and you can, you know, oh, nail it, mate. That's cool. Foxy fettuccine. <laughs> fettuccine. I've actually um, – Quite often, it's, it's an old Italian dish, and fox fox was eaten because end of the day, it's a protein, and a protein on the table is a meal you don't have to buy. Like it's a, you know, all meats a protein. End of the day, so people say, "Oh, have you eaten fox? Would you eat it?" You know, I probably would, but I pass. I have to pass up a hell of a lot more stuff to shoot. A, <laughs> you know what I mean, like. Well, mate, looking at your dishes all the time, well, you would definitely have to pass up a lot of those good dishes to have a fox. Sure, I could make it look nice, but, you know, you'd have to be second-guessing like, Jace, you've just walked past a couple of deer or a pig or something, you know, even a <laughs> rabbit, mate, and you've shot this fox. There's something <laughs> wrong with you. So, <laughs> so. So, mate, I've got two things for you yep. on, on that, on the whole thing. One, you're really sort of encapsulating the subsistence living, which is fantastic to see, not having to go to a supermarket and just living off wild game. Do you have any skills as a professional chef? Because as I said, watching your Facebook page and seeing what comes up, I'll tell you what, for, for a bloke that sometimes tries to diet, you make it hard. Like they just, <laughs> they, the presentation <laughs> looks fantastic. No, that's, and, that's good. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I, are you, I appreciate it. Do you have that professional skill set or how did it come about, your passion for cooking? Cooking, end of the day, cooking's reading a roadmap. Uh, if you can read a roadmap and you're pretty good at, you know, reading reading instruction and you've got some sort of imagination, there's a little bit of art in it as well, and an imagination, you can pretty much cook everything. But, you know, I'm going to take my hats off the chefs. You know, I've worked in kitchens, uh, industrial kitchens and so forth, and I've, you know, grew up having, uh, you know, working at your fast food joint as a kitchen hand and stuff, but I've just got a passion for that cooking, um, you know, Mum used to turn anything into a meal, absolutely anything, and it was crazy. You'd go home and, you know, those she just put it on the table and it was probably last night's dinner just turned upside down and a bit of parsley on top of it or something. You're like, wow, what's that, Mum? That's great, you know. Pretty much, yeah, the old saying, you know, turn into sugar. But And she was really good at it. But I suppose I learned a little bit of skill off Mum and, and then, uh, you know, growing up in the industrial kitchens and just that passion for food. I look at now I'm... I'm I had a girlfriend come over and she said, why is your your TV stuck on SBS food channels and is that all you f***ing watch? And I, yeah, yeah, it, is. it actually is. But it's just in the background all the time. Um, I read cookbooks I, I, and get ideas from cookbooks. 
but I'm not. I'm not a chef. I'm not a. I'm far from being a chef. I'm a boiler maker welder. But um, and that's something I do on stage. You know, I say to people, look, if I can cook it and if I can do it, then there's no reason why anyone can't do it. It's it's far it's far from my trade to be a a, a chef. And you don't have to be a chef to feed yourself. And you know that. It's the imagination and it's the skill that you put into it. You know, there's little technical things you need to learn to, you know, what time to take it off the stove or or how long do you think to put the roast in for or what's the best way to cook it. And that's what I pass down to people. And don't get me wrong, I've thrown a few meals in the bin throughout my life, but there's quite a few have turned out, as you've seen, uh, quite a few have turned out pretty good. So it's a matter of just practising, just learning, uh, reading, getting information like hunting it's like everything you it's a skill set and when you do it when you become good at it or when you learn it you 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 will become good at it you said there that you know it's something you mentioned when you're on stage you and i met through the double SAA shot show system and you were on stage how did that come about you how many shows have you done i did all this circuit for um this is great because a uh, really really good question mate so I did the whole circuit with the SSAA and I'm, they're one of my sponsors at the moment. They sponsor me and I really – I'll take my hat off to these guys. They're great. And anyone that anyone that owns a firearm really should be with the SSAA. They, that, that's their game. You know, that's that's what they do. They back people uh, and they, or they back shooters and hunters. So, But what it was, Dodgers and, – and going back to the beginning uh, of Hunt, Catch, Cook, and this is going right back to the beginning. So – I was working away and I did a um, – well, somebody rang me up. Um, it was the Pig Hunting DVD, I think it was called, uh, Australia Hunting DVD. Great guys, flew in from New Zealand uh, or flew in from over east and wanted to film me because I've been doing – I was on Facebook at, the, at that time, wanted to film me um, hunting something and then cooking it. And I'd done quite a lot of stuff on Facebook. Hadn't really gone – hadn't really launched it that much and I had a few followers. It wasn't really big. And they said, okay, we'll go down, we'll, we'll shoot something, bring it back, you cook it, we'll film you, uh, be fantastic. Yep, no problem at all. So off I went and um, I think we shot a little deer and um, I bought a little fellow and I brought it back and I cooked it up and they filmed me and I got onto their DVD and um, Brendan Callis, the guy that runs the DVD, right at the end of it said, oh, hey, that was Jason Spencer from Hunt, Catch, Cook and uh, look out for his first cookbook. <laughs> And at this day, I was watching the DVD, having a beer, and I thought, oh, yeah, this is really cool. Uh, I hadn't got a cookbook. I'd... <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, I've got, to, uh, I've got to write a cookbook. So thankfully, I was working away and I was working on site. So it gave me the opportunity to come back at night time instead of going to the pub, sit down and write a cookbook. And I had all the notes down anyway, and it was only a matter of getting a publisher and um, – and I, I got the book published and off I went. And I sold a few. It wasn't really selling many, but I sold a few through Facebook and word of mouth and uh, friends were buying them and stuff. And it wasn't really kicking off. And um, I was sitting in my room one night and the SSWA um, said, oh, we're coming to Perth with this new thing called the SHOT Show, the SHOT Expo. And I said, oh, that'd be pretty good. So I happened to email the um, organisers of the SHOT Expo and said, hey, this is what I do. Can I come and cook on stage for you? And they said, oh, yeah, that's oh, – I wanted a booth anyway. And and they said, oh, look, I'll tell you what, if you cook on stage for us, we'll give you a booth to sell your books in. I'd never cooked on stage. I wouldn't have a clue. I'd never publicly speak speaking or anything like that. I'd have done nothing, mate. I was just a boilermaker welder that was out in the bush just, you know, welding me way, you know, trying to earn a bit of money. 
written a f***ing book. I don't know how I did that, but anyway, that was my first book. It was pretty rough. It was pretty rusty. And, I, yeah, no worries. I'll do that. It's coming to Perth, so that'll be fantastic. So I roped in my kids. or No, I think all my mates were down there, the first show. I said, yeah, no problem. I had a couple of T-shirts printed. I got up there on stage and I cooked three meals for two days like on stage. And the first one was just a terrible disaster. The second one was all right. And I think the third one on that first day was edible. And then the after, on the, on the Sunday, they, oh, it was kicking off. It was pretty good. They had 14,000 people in the Perth show. I think it was 14,000 or 15,000 people in the first Perth show. Everyone, back in the day, the first expo, everyone was cashed up. Like there was, everyone was mining. The place was booming. And I sold out of books. Comple- I killed it. It was absolutely great. I walked away. I didn't have a book left. I sold everything. I had a good time. A few of the meals were pretty crap. Like, yeah, I messed up and it was, it was, you know, it wasn't that flash. It was pretty rusty. And then I just, I kind of worked a little bit of a program out and I started cooking things and started preparing and got my books reprinted again. And I'll get a um, phone call from uh, the the organisers said, hey, uh, we want you to come and do the full circuit with us and just show people how to cook. We loved it. It was great. You smashed it. And I thought, that's amazing. That's pretty cool. So that's when I started getting serious. I actually started saying, righty, I'll, I'll get, you know, I'll get a ton, ton of gear. Uh, and I did. I have, I have a tons of, a full ton of gear. Um, and I bring all my stuff with me, all the cooking stuff, all the ingredients. I bought my brother usually or my partner with me and, you know, tables and chairs and the whole lot. And we, and I put a booth together and I was on stage and doing stage shows um, for I think it was six or eight of eight. It must have been more than that. It's nearly, nearly 10 events, I think, all around Australia. And it kicked off and it was really good. And I met some really great people throughout the industry, have made some awesome life, lifelong friends, developed a lifestyle. So that's where Uncatch Cook and the stage show thing with my sponsor, the Sporting Shooters, went. And it's great. And it's good. And you meet, you know, I met people like yourself and, um, you know, it's opened so many avenues in the hunting industry. I've met everyone, you know, right up from politicians right to, to just a normal average um, person that, you know, with the kids and the kids are inspired and I can give them some food and that'll etch in their brain that, yeah, hunting's not that bad at all. Hunting's not just about killing and pulling triggers and, you know, rednecks and that sort of thing. Hunting's more about, yeah, going out and, and, and just providing for family. So that was good. You said there that you met some good people. Is there someone that you've met along the way that you're a bit of a fanboy of that sort of um, has come along and said, oh, hey, Jace? Yeah. Um, Any chefs that you've, you know, look up to? Or? Well, that's a really, really good question. Um, look, I've, I've, yeah, um, that's quite funny. I don't know if you, um, if you boys remember, there was a lady by the name of Lynn, is it Lynn Bain? I think it is. And she used to write for sporting shooters and do a week, uh, the monthly cooking segment in sporting shooters. In the in the magazine, they they bring out their magazine. I'm pretty sure it was Sporting Shooters or Shooting Magazine. I'd religiously buy it just to see her recipes and just to see her cooking style. Yeah, she was great, and she could do some really really good, um, just just fantastic uh, meals uh, with game meat. And she was one of the, I suppose, one of the founders of this sort of industry, like this sort of business. You know, just cook the game meat cooking. She was kind of a pioneer of it, and. Absolutely great. And I met her at one of the shows and she came along and said, oh, hi, Jason, I'm, I'm Lynn. And I said, yeah, I know exactly who you are. It was great. So 
<laughs> I, I was, you know, growing up as a, even as a kid, like just grabbing the books and having a look in the back, and you'd see Lynn's recipes, and and she did some fantastic ones. I even cut a few out, and I've got, a, I still got a, quite a few of her recipes just sitting in books, uh, in folders, and that, and and um, you know, I look at them, and go, oh, yeah, I could do that, or, and um, I think. I think I've tried quite a few of them, even just done it. But yeah, that that was a really good question, and yeah, so hats off to Lynn. She's she's great and a pioneer of it too. Fantastic. Now, for people like Dodge, is there an audio book on the horizon? Because he can read, but doesn't read, as he's mentioned many a time. There's good pictures, and there? I could see that being really helpful for him as he's you know working his way around the kitchen to have you in the background talking to him and reading out a recipe. Is that something that might be on the horizon? Well, I had thought of it, and everyone says, "Oh, you should do an audio book," and I had thought of it or an ebook. It's just I'm old school. I like to like it's in your hands. You know, I'm I'm more of the um, I'm more of a you know, I can put that book out in the kitchen sort of thing and, and fold it out. And because half the time with an ebook, they'll say, it's like any recipe, right? You'll be busy cooking and you put a teaspoon of this in and you'll put this and then somebody will say, oh, hey, do you want another beer or something? Or do you want this? And you'll walk over there, grab something out of the fridge, come back and forget what you're meant to put in next or the ebook is gone. You weren't listening to it because you, you got your head stuck in the fridge. So you've got to rewind it all the time. I just get... I'll get jacked off with it, mate. So I don't know if it's ever going to be an ebook. Um, I have got my third book is in the pipeline, and it was meant to take my first book took six months, and my second book took twelve or twelve and a half months to twelve and a yeah, it was a year and a half pretty much um, to do. And I reckon my third book's now taking me at least three years, at least three years, and you, you get. Um, the more you do, it's like anything, the, the better you get, the more critical you get of it and you're just cynical of yourself and, and what's going on and you, you start second-guessing it and then you, you come across and you, you cross out a recipe and think, oh, yeah. You know, just recently I went up to the NT and shot uh, buffalo and I cut this this guy said, oh, mate, I've never seen anyone strip a buff like this, you know, and I had a broken foot at the time, but I stripped this buff and I took some crazy cuts of meat off. I even ate the brains out of the buff. I thought, this is good. I've got to try them once off. I was trying to get the cheeks out of it and we just didn't. But I'd, I'd done like 20Ks going backwards and forwards with the meat and bags and the flies everywhere and I was, I was hot and I was buggered. And he said, dude, you can't go back and get more meat off that thing, man. That's just like you're dying. Come on, we're going to go. We've got to take this. <laughs> we haven't got any more room for meat. And I'm like, oh, mate, okay, all right. So... Then I got home and I thought, oh, uh, I really should put more buff in my book. <laughs> but the book was full. It's got camel and donkey in it and the third book's got, oh, it's got everything in it. But I thought, I really should uh, put more buff in it now because I've had more, you know, I've got some cool cuts of buff and I brought them home. But, yeah, it is It is what it is. I'll just, um, yeah, maybe I'll have to write a fourth book. And you mentioned there talking about crazy cuts of buffalo. You went on that trip with a crazy cut yourself. Now, I'm not sure if there was a blackout when you were halfway through getting a haircut or or what happened. It's like the razor broke. What was – anyone that follows you on the socials saw that thing you were rocking. What was that? Oh, I mean, Mallet. Jeez, he's not nice. He doesn't worry about, like, hassling our guests, does he? No, like... that's cool. That is cool. <laughs> you should have seen this thing. It looked like he'd run under a tree and a skunk had dropped on him. No, that's cool. So <laughs> – I got, I got a mullet, so I grew this mullet, and it was it was pretty mint. The missus now said to me, right, so 
girlfriend has said, she's just said to me tonight, uh, actually today, she said, you've got to grow that mullet back. That looked pretty cool. And I, I went, no, you can't. You can't. I can't do it. And she's like, no, you have to. You've got to grow it back. Isn't it? Don't they call it a moulet, like the upper class mullet? It's <laughs> a skullet, yeah. Something like that. That's cool. It's, Business at the front, party at the that's back. That's it. Yeah, it's more of a piss day. you just got to have a bit of fun in life. You know, life is just way too short, mate. I love it. I love it. It's what it's all about. So, Jason, you really, you know, you're cooking side. Obviously, that is a passion. Yeah. Is it something that... Like you've got a lot of followers on Facebook. I think you're up to fifty-seven thousand. That's you know that's massive. That's yeah. You know, and congratulations on that. No, thanks, mate. Is it something that you're really pushing to go like full time? Because I can see that you're passionate about what you do, and you do do really well at it. So is that something that is a long-term thing? Is this a something to be like a financial, just a, a to make a living doing something you love? It'll never be a full-time gig for me it won't it just won't do it I, I, like i've contemplated it quite often like why don't i make it full time and i think i'll always be an author um in that sense and i'll continue when i get time and probably you know if i get to retirement uh, if i live that long then i'll write some more books and i've got a whole heap of ideas and stuff i'll, I'll maybe i'll be in business but it, i'll never be in business doing this this is a passion and and i have to for, strictly for that reason i've got to keep it passionate too because i'll lose I know damn well that if I have to do it full time, I'll lose a passion, and I'm not I'm not willing to give that up. I'm not willing to say to myself, "Oh, look, I can't be bothered," and then I suffer just not eating game meat because I love it. I, I I just like doing what I do. I like cooking it. Mate. It's kind of the old, you know, if you get if you're doing something and you turn um, you turn it into a job, you lose the interest for it. And I don't want to have to I don't want to have to do it. I love doing it and I love getting out of bed early in the morning and going doing it. I don't want to have to do it. I don't want somebody to say, well, you have to do this. And I think there's, you know, just it, it kind of, I show people that. It, it, it kind of rubs off on me and I don't, I'm not trying to blow my own horn here, but I know I'm passionate about it. That's the thing and it's good. I, I love it. I really do. I like it. I like, you know, making time to make podcasts like this or making time to do little live cooking shows on Facebook and, you know, I'm interacting with my um, people who watch me all the time. Like I'm getting messages throughout the day, uh, nighttime, you know. But I've had a um, a message at 2 o'clock in the morning on how long to put his wild pork roast on for it. 2 in the morning I woke up and uh, without a lie, I woke up, rolled over and answered the guy, mate, because he was, he was Eastern States, Daylight Savings. Uh, I think it was this time of the year he was at the, the grand final was coming on the next day. That's tonight. Yeah, which is tonight. It was the same guy's probably going to call me tonight. <laughs> the boys were coming around, so he got up out of bed early in the morning, which is five. So that would have been yeah, three three o'clock. Yeah, their time. So he put it on an hour early. So he, he rang me. Yeah, two a.m. Messaged me or rang no, messaged me and wanted to know how long to put his wild pork roast on for. Rolled over, bang, no problem, mate. I'll let you know, and I'll just I, I told him what time it was. He's like, oh, sorry, dude, but. Kind of didn't really worry me too much. It's good, makes a good story, but it's it's what it's about. Like you know, people want to do it, and you put yourself out there, and you put yourself up the front there, and say, okay, this is what I do. Then yeah, I'm happy to answer that question, no problem at all. And apparent and apparently it turned out all right. So he messaged me back and said, oh, I was actually it was a ripper. Yeah, cheers for that. I personally get that feeling, the whole trading your passion into a job, and then where it goes from there. I've done it loosely with guiding and things. It's and I re- when regularly say to people, 
they ask, oh, you know, you've got a great, that's such a great thing you do. It's amazing. You live in the dream. And when you turn something into a job, there's a certain, I don't know, there's a, there's a, a level of love that's lost a little bit in the passion and because it does just become a job and it does take away some of the things. There's a lot of things you gain from it that you don't normally achieve, but I definitely get that. And I, I say to people, if you're going to go guiding, just be cautious. You don't let it overtake your actual, your own passion. Yeah, that's exactly right. So how long are you, how long have you been guiding for now, Dodge? Uh, it started in 13, I think, 2013. Yeah. So coming up to 10 years. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it, what are you smiling at, Matty? I just remember last night's uh, podcast with your counting. And, do you, but, and uh, do, you still think, do you still think you got the same passion for it now that you're being paid for it? So I, I get passion for different parts. I And I've spoken about this before. The passion for me is taking you to get your first animal or your animal that you the, – the actual finding of the animal and the hunting part of it, I enjoy just as much as I do when I'm doing it for myself. But what – I don't get when I'm hunting for myself that I get when I'm hunting with other people is that connection with them and being a part of that moment for them. And I think you'll probably, you'd feel the same. You know, if you showed me how to cook something, I cooked something and then you got to try it or I told you how good it was. Yeah. That's a double smile See, for you. That's where I get, yeah, that's where I get my passion from because I'll get messages and photos from people going, Hey, thanks for that, man. I followed your recipe check this out, it was absolute magic. And I'll get that whole heap of, you know, my ideas or, or a recipe out of my cookbook and they'll message me, I just tried your recipe tonight and it's absolutely fantastic, great hit, thanks for that. And that that's what keeps me going, exactly right. Now, if I was getting paid for it, it'd be like, well, yeah, I'm getting paid to do it, mate. So it wasn't really, you know, it's just a monetary thing for me. So thanks anyway. Yeah, but not like it is when you're, when you're just doing it off your own bat and, and, you know, people are like, oh, thanks for that. That's cool. So I'll get that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a favourite way to cook? Like, so I was sort of dodged about this the other week is that we were, um, I was on air talking about, I love, I'm really getting into smoking with the pellet smoker and I just love the flavour that it brings out. Yeah. Do you have a favourite way to cook? The pellet, um, the pellet smoker is so easy, but. Really, you just put it in there, turn it on, hit a button, and walk off. And they come back and lift that lid, and it's brilliant. It's really good. That's good. Yeah, but and look, in fairness, Jason, you were talking before that your mum was a really good cook. So we have a running joke in my family is that my mum could burn salad, and that's not a lie uh, if you've ever had her cooking. So you know, I'm self-taught with cooking, and yeah. I love cooking. And, you know, yeah, as you said, the pellet smoke is so good. It's set and forget. It is, yeah. My, my, my electric smoke is set and forget. But I quite often with game meat, as you can understand, um, it takes a lot of – there's a, a certain cooking method. It's either really quick or it's really slow. So the slow cooker will go uh, – you know, it'll get presented quite often with game meat. And I think I, I run it quite a lot, you know. But saying that, the slow cooker, there's a, every, you can cook everything in the slow cooker. You know, I bake bread in my slow cooker and I do uh, all sorts of stuff. I cook my breakfast sometimes or my, um, my girlfriend gets up and cooks me breakfast in the slow cooker. She just gets up and puts it a couple of hours before I get up and then it's up, I'm ready. And, and you know, she's done, she's done a breakfast for me um, to take to work. So I like, really do flavor some meals in the slow cooker, but I enjoy all styles of cooking. You know, when it comes to even drying, even uh, frying, the more technical side of things like making croquettes or 
you know, making, I don't know, different styles of, of meat, you know, hams or any of that, the prosciuttos and stuff. It's not, you know, not necessarily a cooking style, but it's still a style of it, you know, of that. And I, I enjoy I enjoy all sorts, but the most, the one that gets ran the most and probably a little bit too much uh, is the slow cooker, yeah. You, you mentioned their croquettes. I actually thought that was a game. I'm not sure what you're talking about, <laughs> but... <laughs> So it's so it's um, like a, a minced or pulled kangaroo. I do a, I do kangaroo croquettes. So cook the kangaroo until it, it's pretty much pulled meat, and then mix it with a potato. And um, it's a it's a Dutch dish, a, a croquette. So like a little potato. Then you deep then you roll it in crumbs and deep fry it. So um, and they turn out into like a little potato meat potato style. About the same size, like a rissole, rosti, like a sausage. About the same same length as a sausage, sort of a little bit shorter, and really flavoursome too. Not they've got a hell of a lot of butter in it, and um, yeah, there's a bit of potato in it, but not real good for you. But it's got kangaroo in it, so hey, why not? Let's run that. That's cool. I love kangaroo, and it's been on this podcast because Dodge feeds it to his best friends, and mm. I keep saying to him, "Hey, flick it my way if you get extra," because I it's one of my favourite meats to eat. What is your favourite to eat and to cook with? Because you've got such a vast array of game meat that you do utilise a lot more than you know people like myself. So what? Yeah, what's your favourite to cook with and eat? I love look. I love seafood, but um, my game meat. It, it, that's a hard one because I, I do like kangaroo. I like the um, the versatile of kangaroo. Kangaroo is one of the most underutilised meats in the world. It is actually. We class that as a dog food, and you could feed a starving nation with the amount of kangaroos that we've got in this place, mate, and any other country, oh, my God, they would just, yeah, everyone would be free meat for everyone forever, you know, you'd never run out. However, my favourite, I can't go past, oh, even a bit of camel, um, camel steaks, but at the moment, at the moment, my favourite is buffalo, I know that, it's just, it's good, I love that, that's fantastic. Just the, the way I'm doing it. So I kind of, you know, I've had podcasts previously said, what's your favourite meat? And I'm saying, well, back then it was kangaroo, but now, you know, I'll shoot something else and it's, um, yeah, at the moment it's buffalo. It used to be um, camel. There's nothing wrong with a bit of donkey as well. Donkey's nice, but I'll, camel's probably one of them. Uh, venison gets a rating, but not as, and I eat a lot of it, but not near as much as uh, camel and, and buffalo at the moment. Buff's great. That's really good. I definitely agree with that as far as rating goes. I would put camel being my highest. I think it eats like a, a nice bit of wagyu, or like it. Yeah. The intramuscular fat on it is amazing. It is, it is yeah, and that's why I, 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 that's how I um, tell people. You know, they say, "What's camel like?" Um, it's kind of like that. Yeah, it's got that fat in it. Uh, you can utilize a lot of the cuts too because it's so fatty and the hump's so fatty. I've rendered the hump down into oil and then deep fried potatoes with it in the oil and it's just it's really nice really and it eats all the same uh feed as our export cattle do too so you know it's got that fat content in it it's very very nice so you touched on seafood and mate that's one of my favorite things i like to seafood and eat it but seafood for me i love but i started out as a spear fisherman and then sort of have moved my way into hunting now one of the favourite dishes I've seen on yours was your crayfish cheeseburger. That looks just oh, like, yeah, yeah. You know, for, yeah. for me, the, having one of those on the uh, NFL Super Bowl day would just with a beer, oh, that's heaven. But 
do you do much spear fishing? Do you like do you do fishing? You're in WA now. Yeah. A lot of sharks over there. Great whites, especially. How do you go about sourcing your seafood? You can eat sharks. Um, no, no. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's a spear gun nah, big enough sharks, to take out a great white though. Sharks. <laughs> um, they're there, but you don't see them. Like they they are there, and you see them every now and then. But it's like anything. They're not going to eat a fish that bubbles are coming out of. So. Saying that, you know, they, they probably they probably would. I do a lot of cray fishing, uh, diving wise. Um, I haven't been diving for uh, some time now, only for the fact that we're just out of the back of winter, sort of thing. So I'll probably get into it. That's mainly um, crabbing. So we got a lot of blue manna crabs in the south of Perth in the Mandra Peel region. Um, so I don't mind. And that's a quick, easy, even after work sort of thing. Just come down, grab the family, or or just go down by yourself, or just get up in the morning. Get up, go for a bit of a uh, Sunday morning. Go to church, you know. Jump in the water, have a have a walk around for a couple of hours. Get a few crabs. Come home, do a Singapore chili crab for lunch, or just yeah, pull it apart, make a sandwich out of it, and or maybe, yeah, get get the meat out of them. Depending, there's lots of different stuff. You know, it's 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 back to imagination. As soon as you can find, you know, go for a flick for some whiting or brim or any of that river. Yeah, any of that stuff. We've got. Two questions for you flowing on from that one. You mentioned Singapore chili crab. Now, I've I've spoken on a previous podcast. I went to Singapore on a stopover. I don't eat chili. I hate it. Well, I just can't handle it. I'm a puss. I don't even do pepper. Not interested. So to go over there, I was really keen to eat the national dish, Singapore chili crab. So I would sprinkle a few little chili flakes on all my meals a month before I went, and I would cry, and it didn't really help. When I got over there, there was nothing that can compare you to the face-melting enjoyment of a Singapore chili crab whilst in Singapore when it's 32 degrees and 802% humidity. Was it really – but was it really hot? Probably not. No, okay. I think they only added white pepper. But yeah. to me, that it tastes the same. Can I jump in here for a second? Can, like, no, look, I like, like I like to fact check and Singapore's – Dish, uh, their national dish. Dodgy, dodgy facts. Is <laughs> actually a plate of poached or roasted chicken on a bed of fragrant rice. So thank you for your fact, Dodge. I really appreciate wow. it. You're wrong. Wow, he's doing his homework. Yeah, so it's the international dish that I was closely drawn to, right? <laughs> that's fair. Right, anyway, that's no, fair. that's, that's cool. so good. That, that cool. can be international. <laughs> so on the... On the uh, international topic of Singapore, you mentioned like spear fishing. Were you using a Hawaiian sling at any chance? Or... <laughs> <laughs> That's his go-to anytime we talk about spear fishing. Yeah, yeah. It's my only my only thing I know about spear fishing. So. <laughs> Please oh, say awesome. yes. Awesome. There's no answer. <laughs> no. He, he just brushed you. He just like, Jason just went, look, what are you talking about, mate? No one no. uses a Hawaiian sling in no, WA. Definitely not. So I did see... I did see one, I'm going to, I don't know if it was TV or it was on Facebook, but you were on TV and you were doing a, like a Jeff Jantz style cooking down by a dam or a, or a creek or something in town and you were catching crabs and cooking it. There was a lady interviewing you. It was, was it live on TV? What was that for? So that was, um, I did a um, TV show, uh, You Are What You Eat. Uh, it was Malaysian. That was a couple of years ago now, but it was a Malaysian TV show. So what they did, we caught marin. So West Australian freshwater mm. marin, um, and they said, we want you to catch them, and then we'll go back to your place and cook them up. So I've got a studio kitchen out the back, 
and um, we'll go we'll go back there and we'll film you in the studio, uh, you cooking it up. And I did a um, a marin with a uh, salsa in the marin. So I pulled the marin out of the shell, did it, put it into a salsa, and then put it back in the shell and served it to them. And but it was really funny because like I did it for the program. I was talking to them, and it was quite funny because they it was all in their their language, but they'd ask me in English. So, but she'd be speaking for like ten minutes in their language, and then turn around and look at me like I knew what she was talking about, and I had no idea. And it's just this blank stare straight through her, a big smile. It was crazy, absolute crazy. So, but it was good. It was actually a good TV show. It was funny. It was quite. It worked out well, and we got the marin on. They thought it was. They thought it was fantastic. The film crew thought it was amazing. They thought it was good. They didn't drink as much beer as I did, but that's cool. On marin, I uh, that was probably the first thing I ever cooked. And funny story, I'll tell you why. The reason is that I had a pet blue marin. It was massive because I started with yabbies and then went to these big blue marin. It was amazing looking things. Uh, managed to somehow kill it and forget that part, like in the in the aquarium. And I was like, 100 bucks, that was a lot of money. Back then, it was a lot of pocket money for me. I went, stuff this, I'm going to boil her up and eat it. So I boiled it up and made a bit of a sauce, threw it in there. And I think I was only probably about 12, 13 at the time. Mate, delicious. Like I, I absolutely loved it. But what a quality, quality bit of meat. Uh, nice, nice. And they're fresh water, fresh water off the top of my head. Yeah, they are, mate. Yeah, a long yeah. Time ago yeah. Now. yeah. Really, really good. Dodge, you ever had Marin? No, never. What's the one up in NT with the big skinny uh, nippers? Cherubim. Yeah, that one. I've had, tried that one, Yeah, but haven't done Marin. Yeah, Marin, are, they're like a, sort of like a cross between a yabby and a lobster. Uh, yeah. They're, they're, well, I say yabby and a lobster. Hold on. They're, um, they're a big – they're fairly big. They're fairly big. All righty. Hold on. I'll just give you a spin around the studio too. There's a studio. Yeah, set up well. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It works well. How often do you cook out there? Um, not a lot. Like if I'm doing a bit of filming, not a lot. I'll cook. I'll I'll break down some animals there. But uh, sometimes I'll do some live videos on it. Or if I'm doing some YouTube stuff, I'll do some YouTube gear. I've got a fridge full of shit there and there. No, it works well. Bit of entertaining in that out here. Yeah, I don't I don't cook a hell of a lot out here. That's a good little setup. Yeah. I'm trying to aim for something similar here, but. Got a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. You got the outdoor area, Matt. Yeah, yeah. I just that's where I want to do it. I sort of want to build into it, and I really want to get into sort of cooking paella and get one of the real big pans and just mm. oh, a paella pan, mate, absolutely magic. Yeah, big flamethrowers underneath them. Yeah, yeah do that outside in that little area. I reckon that'd go good. I've done it with a um, venison venison salami and um, I threw yabbies in it as well. Oh, and it turned out absolutely magic. Had the yabby in it and then the venison salami through it as well. Perfect. So that salami, is that something that, you know, that's a, that's a unique combination. How did you, you know, where did that come from? Where, where did that inspiration to mix those two different meats in there come from? So, well, that was just the paella recipe calls for that. So it calls for, you know, it's got a, like a normal salami in it anyway. Um, it's their style of they put a chorizo sausage with it. So I thought, oh, well, instead of the chorizo, I'll just put the what I've got, the venison salami, and instead of the prawns, and I'll use something a little bit um, inland. Instead of throwing a seafood in it, I'll, I'll use something a little bit uh, more, I wouldn't say muddy texture, but something a little bit of a basic texture to it, so not that seafoody taste to it. 
it'll keep it a little bit uh, neutral. So I'll throw um, yabbies in it instead. So that's where my ideas come from. Like I still pair it the same as you would with any other dish or any other recipe, but I'll change that recipe into uh, what I use. And so the game meat, for instance, you could get a, a lamb recipe and you could uh, use goat, or you could get a beef recipe and you can use buffalo, or you could try it with camel, that sort of thing. Chicken, you could use rabbit. And um, so a lot of my recipes I develop, I, use, I just pair it with those animals that it would be the same. And I, I try and aim for that. You know, I try and think of even new recipes. I try and think of, okay, what could I use and what would be good for me to use and what could, you know, what could people that hunt use instead of using, you know, shop-bought food? Where could, where could we go from here, you know? You mentioned earlier on that you threw a few meals in the bin. Is there anything that sticks in your mind, one particular meal that would have tasted like Matt's mum's salad? Like is there anything that you just absolutely botched and thought, no way I'm feeding that to anyone? No, yeah. Um, or it just didn't match match as well as you thought? Yeah, look, I, I don't know I don't know if you'd get them over there. Uh, well, you, yeah, you probably would, but there's a freshwater, there's a freshwater mussel and we get them in the river systems here and they're basically a filter, like all mussels are filters. But these are a freshwater filter, so they just taste like shit. And I can't, I can't explain it any other way. But they're, oh mate. And I thought, oh mussels, look at this. And I collected all these mussels from the river, and I thought, this is great. Look, I've got a big feed of mussels. I went home and I thought, I'll do a chili mussel dish with freshwater mussels, and took a photo of it. I thought, this is great. And I took one bite, and nearly threw up. And I'm like, that is disgusting. And I gave it to my mate. I said, you've got to try that. My mate. Uh, <laughs> As a stitch-up? Yeah, some of the people uh, come around my house get stitched up with so much <laughs> Like I was saying, I've got to tell, this will lead on to another story. I've got to tell you this. So I said, oh, that's pretty crap. So I'll give him the chili mussels. And he, he reckons he loved, him and his girlfriend love chili mussels. And they ate half of them and went, oh, we're full. I went, oh, yeah, they obviously don't like them. So. I'll try it in uh, herb and lemon sauce. So I cooked them again, and they were still there. I said, oh, yeah, here, these will be heaps better. Just have a taste. And they said, they don't taste any better. I tried it and went, no, nah, this is dog <laughs> This is crap. And I threw about freshwater mussels. People say to me, and I still get messages every now and then, oh, have you tried freshwater mussels? I'm like, just don't. You just use them as bait. Catch some redfin with them or something. They're just terrible. I, I won't go there. Now, any, anyway... That leads into a story that some friends come around or my mate came around that I, I, I work with. He brought his new girlfriend with him and they come around. And I said, oh, hey, glad you turned up, guys. I've got to give you this. Um, I've just been cooking and I want you to try this dish. And they're like, oh, yeah, what is it? I said, it's called tartare or tartare, yeah, which is a French dish. and um, It's delicious. It's delicious. Have you ever tried it with horse? Oh, no, I'm dying for Chevrolet. <laughs> yeah. But we talked about this on an earlier podcast. So horse, I, I made him horse tartare, right? And I cracked an egg in it and I've given him these little biscuits, these little French biscuits and that, and they're digging into it and like a dip, you know what I'm saying? Get it in you, guys. And it's like, oh, what is it? And I said, it's um, tartare. Oh, what's that? I said, it's just meat, like blended, uncooked meat. Oh, <laughs> and you can see the you can see the girlfriend's faces went, oh, what's that? And then what kind of meat is it? And I was like, it's horse. And she nearly threw up. <laughs> like, oh, what the hell? Where did you get a horse from? 
Well, you know, long story, shot it. It was priceless. And they still talk about it like, oh, that's the guy. Yeah. There's Jace with his horse tartare. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard of one story, someone someone eating the freshwater mussels and their description was it tasted like a dirty dish sponge. Yes. Squeezed into their mouth. Yes. It is exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've nailed well, it. That's mate. their job. That's what they do. You've nailed it. That's exactly what they do. They filter all the rubbish out of rivers and then you can get it. You squeeze it into your mouth. Whoa, it makes me sick. <laughs> Got to taste like that emu beer. No, no way. That's mother's milk, mate. So going off that, you've just talked about mussels and, and their role in, I guess, the ecosystem as being that filter. I see you do a lot of cooking with pork. And wild pig, yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing that's always concerned me with wild pork, especially over here in more our sort of outback sort of regions, is they do like to eat a lot of carrion, whatever they will find they'll eat. Yeah. For me, that's a concern eating the meat and the flavour because actually I'll go into this story. It's quite funny. Well, I was out, oh, I can't remember, I think Ningen. Yeah, it was Ningen. Sorry, we were out there and we're driving along the road and we saw a goanna caught up in sort of the, the side of the road. It was in a fence and it was sort of stuck. So, you know, I jumped out to, to help it out and never been afraid of reptiles or snakes. So grabbed... Um, this goanna trying to get it free was getting help by my brother trying to get it out of the the fence (laughs) i've had the top of the neck so it didn't bite me because it's probably about five six foot long it was a decent size goanna and (laughs) it's gone to to and they make a massive noise when they're about to spray so my brother's heard it and he's let it go so i've been holding it by the neck and it's just come face forward facing me and it sprayed. And I look like Steve Irwin back when he was crawling through the mud, covered in this going oh. And it stunk. And then it went into, then it proceeded obviously being stressed. It started to, to vomit up a, a pig's hoof. And the smell, I was dry reaching. Uh, it was that bad. I literally, we're in the middle of Ningen on this dirt road. And I stripped down in my underwear just to get this filth off me and wipe down my legs because I was in shorts and <laughs> these miners come flying along in a ute and they've just seen me on the side of the road jumping up and down because I'm in bare feet because it got in me socks as well and I'm jumping up and down. They've just looked at me, slowed down, just all looked at me and then sped off. <laughs> but the smell of the, the carrion was horrid. So that takes me back to the pigs and what they eat and I just... That really worries me about cooking wild pig because if they're feeding on crap, that would really, you know, I think the flavour and texture of the meat would change. Have you ever experienced any of that? That's interesting you say that because I I get asked, one of the most asked questions I get and through social media, um, through everything is, how do I know wild pig is okay to eat? Um, And that's that's a really valid question for all hunters. Like, how do they know that game meat's okay to eat? So if you're getting... For any animal, if they're getting a worm, so other than rabbits will get cysts in them as well um, and like a hydatus in between muscle. Um, but when it comes to a wild pork, um, a pigs anyway, if there's a, if there's a worm or a disease, it will usually be in their bowel, stomach area, um, internal organs. So my answer to a lot of that is do you eat the internal organs of the pig? And most people say no, or or the shit sack, or, or that sort of thing. You know, the bowel. Most people say no. So that's where that's how you can differentiate the good meat, bad meat sort of thing. However, 
laying in it and they're rolling it and being pigs, there'll, there'll be that stink all over them. So one way to uh, get rid of that too and the lice and ticks is to skin your pig. So you've got rid of the skin, you've got rid of the guts. There's 99% of the, the problem. Um, and a little animal husbandry involved. So uh, I think a pig has something like 40-something glands in the pig. So up under legs, there's internal glands, and they're tiny little green. I've done quite a lot of live um, shows and videos and um, how-tos on it, and there's little glands throughout the pig. If you're going to get infection or cysts, the mainly 99% of the time they'll be in those glands. So if you continue to um, check out the pig and make sure it's in good condition, those glands are fine. Uh, if you see any of those glands, cut them out that are swollen or if they've turned into cysts, cut them out. Your pig meat's fine. Your wild pork's fine. So saying that in, you know, it, it does it eat, when it eats meat, does it change the meat flavour? Most of our wild pork over here is bush pork and, you know, onto farmland. When it goes onto farmland, it's eating crops. The only way, the only place it's going to get, you know, a lot of roadkill uh, or it's going to start eating meat will be dead animals along the sides of roads, obviously kangaroos and stuff. However, they won't, they won't continue to eat kangaroos forever. They'll vary their diet. Like most, most animals will, will come and eat something, you know, for a while or they'll go back into cropland. So, um, you know, once, it, once a pig's going into canola crop, it fattens up and it's absolutely beautiful. So there's nothing wrong with it. And some of our wild pork over here is better than that kangaroo. Yeah, it's magic. You're talking about cutting pigs up specifically, but other animals, is there anything weird you found inside them? Something that you just completely unexpected? You know, I've found previously a broadhead that was completely healed over, old bullet wounds that were completely healed. We found a bull elk. A bull elk had another a 12-inch long tine, that's 30 centimetres for you, Matt, long tine snapped off up under its jowl. So it had been fighting, gone in, snapped off, healed over and was infected. And we only found it when we were caping it out. I found um, I found bullet wounds in, in pigs before, yeah. I found, uh, you know, some pigs, I found a pig with no, well, half a face. So it only had uh, its eye, ear and pretty much half its face was missing. I don't know how it happened or what. Yeah, you're not too sure, but it only had one eye, and I got. I think I got it in the trap. I think, yeah, had 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 one eye missing and an ear missing. So it had been hit by something, or it had been something had happened to it. And I didn't keep it. Like I just, yeah, uh, got rid of it. But well, I didn't eat it. Um, only for the fact that if it was got to that point, if it had a potential to have a disease, then you know, an animal like that's going to have a disease. So. Yeah, other than that, um, you know, the odd bullet wound every now and then, you'll find a bullet wound in, in, in pigs, uh, not so much in deer. They've been pretty good. You know, the camels, there's that many of them, and donkeys, that many of them. So, yeah, it hasn't been too bad. So on bullet wounds, uh, we had a question come in from a listener, so shout out to Mitch. Thanks for sending it in to, well, I mean, it is shots fired. Shots fired. So Dodge, this is sort of his segment, but I'm going to sort of overtake it here. Are you concerned about lead bullets and the fragments breaking up being in the meat? Has that ever crossed your mind? Yeah, that has not crossed my mind at all. Because usually when, well, you know yourselves being both hunters, but when, when a bullet fragments, it starts tearing cartilage and muscle and, that, and, and uh, you get hematomas and eruptures, ruptures um, vessels. So there's a lot of that dark meat starts turning the meat pretty dark. So, so especially arrow wounds in chest cavities, uh, that sort of thing, it starts turning meat 
to a colour that you normally wouldn't eat. So a lot of that gets cut out. That's the only reason I, I don't get too concerned with fragments of bullets is because of the fact that I cut most of that bullet, bullet damage meat out or I shoot him in the head and, um, yeah, the head comes off anyway. So that's a really good one. The reason, I guess, a follow-on question from that is we had a previous guest on who was basically shot in his swag and uh, he's on a, a hunting trip down in uh, Victoria and got shot in his swag from an illegal poacher, spotlighting in night, and he was in a public campground. And he sent us the images, which will be on our socials by the time this airs, and the X-ray and the amount of fragments that were left inside his leg, and that's after they'd removed the mushroomed bullet and I think three other decent chunks of bullet out of him. It was, look, don't quote me, but I reckon it was close to between 50 and 100 little pieces of sort of shrapnel. And I've never really thought about it either. And it's just something that's really come up since that question and that uh, that guest when we saw the actual damage done to himself. Now, granted, I do believe that when the bullet hit his swag, Dodge made a really good point, when the bullet hit the swag, it then started to mushroom from there rather than actually in when it hit his skin. So that could obviously change the bullet composition, everything, and how it ends up in the, the animal meat too. Firstly, what a lucky to, to guy. His... Yeah. And secondly... Yes. You know, um, saying that, how many times uh, have you guys, I, I know for myself back in the day that um, you know, a good duck dinner, you'd be spitting pellets out on the side of the plate. I don't know if you guys have done it, but I certainly have. Eh? There's no, you know, a couple of fillings of it, I'm sure, have been removed because of uh, shotgun pellets. <laughs> Your dentist must love you. Is duck hunting a thing in Perth? Uh, in Western Australia, it's no longer. Um, you can get a permit. There is a there is a a season for it, but it's more it's a control. So it's not a it's not registered duck hunting. It is a season that you are allowed to control them on. You can only can control them on that in that season. You have a certain. I think it's only a matter of weeks. You can you're allowed to shoot them for a control, and you have to have permits to shoot them. And it's pretty much basically now you can't do it. So I do. I have done it previously, um, and I have got permits for it uh, and controlled ducks in certain amounts. But you know, your your farm really, your dam really has to be overrun with them, mate, before you start doing that sort of thing, especially in Perth. So you mentioned you've mentioned a few different game meats: duck, camel, donkey, and things like that. What what are the game species you've got in Perth that are available for either you know people hunting over there or people from over east coast that want to head over oh, okay so certainly uh rabbit obviously but that's you know just the field rabbit but and then we'll go from uh that to um there is deer there's you know it's, they're prevalent here but um a lot of people they're, they're not as big here as they are in the east seaboard so there is some around um goats our wild goat population is quite good uh, up in the station country or the, the pre-station country. Uh, and then you'll get up north to uh, obviously hunting your camel, donkey, uh, scrub bull. There's quite a number of scrub bulls as well. Um, you know, obviously permission, like anywhere in Australia, you need permission. You need land to go on and uh, station country, but it's not too bad. You can also do paid hunts over here and guided hunts, uh, as you may well know. And... Um, 
you know, but some of the bigger game animals, uh, camel, obviously, wild horse, um, the brumby, the donkey, and they're pretty popular. What have I missed? Uh, that's pretty much it. Is there any state forest hunting? Uh, we have state forest hunting here in New South Wales. Not yet. Yep, not as yet. Uh, not no state forest hunting. But you know, there's big there's big parcels of country. There's big parcels of land that you can get permission on, and and, and that work that do. Yeah, it's very hard just to lob up and start. Like if I was to come over there, uh, very hobby, uh, hard to lob up and just start hunting. You'd have to know someone, and it works. It kind of works in our favour, really. If you can't just turn up and start hunting. Uh, you, you just can't go and get a license and start hunting, put it that way. Yes, so interesting you say that. Like we have our public land, the state forest over here, and one of the things our listeners would be well aware of is I have never had access to private lands. So do similar things occur to other Western Australians who, because there's no sort of public land, that they can't get into the hobby because they don't have that access? What's happening over here, you could, um, and I think they're, they're trying to stop that at the moment, you could buy letters. You could buy a letter for firearms. So you could have a letter on your firearm and then you could start, you could hunt with it. However, once you've done that, but, but people had nowhere to hunt. So it was there was a lot of firearms and a lot of hunters, but nowhere to hunt. You need a private property. You need somewhere to hunt on. So you could buy a letter and get a firearm and people were just getting firearms and using them. Uh, you know, you could still go to a club and still get firearms, so, but people were doing that. And they've tried to put a little bit of a stop to it. However, when it comes to hunting over here, hunting um, in Western Australia is all about effort and you have to put a little bit of effort into it to get to get that public or to sorry to get that private land you can't just go and hunt anywhere you like uh you could join a club you could join a hunting club and have a crack at that you could go on you know there's there's uh for instance uh sporting shooters have got various clubs that go hunting in groups um uh, there's different clubs throughout you know deer association go on hunts together uh, that sort of thing in western australia so still benefits in hunting yeah people can just turn up and go hunting you know obviously social media people say oh you know can i go for a hunt or does anyone want to tag along? And you, every now and then you get somebody tag along. We have fox shoots, registered fox shoots um, that go on. You know, and people can go and join them and go on fox shoots. So, yeah, there's still a, there's still fair opportunity for um, hunting to go on in that stage. Similar over here, Matt and I met through our local hunting club. So, it's something that's it's nationwide that the ability to come together as a group of like-minded people and then, if you're lucky, get access through that or you know be consistent and put your effort in and. You may get invited out with Mr. Spencer and into uh, one of his special camel blocks or something. You know, it's not easy to to get that access either. I, I say that. myself, so we don't yeah sorry, we don't share it that easily. Sorry to cut you off there, Dodge. I say that to a lot of people like um, that are new into the hunting game. The best thing it's it's like anything. If you can network with like minded people that have the same thought process as you, uh, you're gonna actually end up going out with them, and you'll find your niche. You'll find people that you gel with. Um, you know, you'll go and you might do some targets or you might, you know, put the effort into it and then you'll find some people that you actually go out with, you like, you enjoy uh, and you'll be on their blocks or you take them to your block or whatever. If you find one, say, hey, why don't you come along for a hunt? And I've found many my mates that, oh, you're into hunting? Yeah, I am. So, oh, I've got a place up here. So I'll go, you know, you go to theirs or or they take you to theirs and, and, and that's what it's about. It's about networking. It's about a community that... We're a hunting community, end of the day, yeah. Networking and community, just you didn't know this, Matt, 
Jason has been hunting with the doctor, the good doc, Mr. Yannick. Oh, Yannick. Yes. What tell a... us about that trip. Oh, mate, let me tell you about this trip. So this is um, – How did it come about? This was quite some time ago. So I've, I've grown up with a mate that came hunting with us. is also a doctor. So there was two doctors and a boiler maker. And we're <laughs> 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 Sounds like a bad joke already. It is. It was, it was actually pretty funny, right? So we're going – both doctors got to know each other through hunting, but there was bow hunting. Yannick was really good at bow hunting. And um, although he had a few firearms and, and my mate – Let's just say the other doctor, I'm not going to name him for oh, maybe legal reasons, I don't know. So um, maybe, I shouldn't, maybe, I should, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have mentioned Yannick as well. But uh, he's, all right. he's been on the podcast. Just call him Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob, yes, that's perfect. So let's go goat hunting. So, yeah, no worries. I said, look, I've only just bought a bow in the last couple of months. Uh, I'm no good at it. I'm going to bring my six mil with me, my six mil rem. I'll bring that just as like a backup. And just in case I don't get anything. And they're like, oh, we're not really meant to have guns. But anyway, just bring it along, mate. And I'm like, yeah, cool, all right. So I took that. Anyway, we were walking around for all looking on this station for goats. We were walking around everywhere, like uh, driving around a bit, having a look up and down hills, we're everywhere. And I was like, oh, man, come on. I think it was uh, for a long weekend. And day one and two, I was exhausted. Day three, I said, look, if we don't get anything on day three, the six mil's coming out. I can see them. I just can't get close to him. You know, I was up and down trying to bow hunt, and I was missing. And Yannick had uh, got three nice billies. I hadn't got anything, and they were, like, walking past me, and I was like, I've had enough. So I pulled the six mil out, and I think on the front of my um, – I've still got it. The photo on the front of my webpage is me with three goats. And that, those three goats were one bullet with a six mil, went straight through all of them and dropped them. <laughs> And it was like the, the station owner said, oh, look, every time you shoot a goat, it's like $20. I think I racked up like $600 worth of goats. So I had goats everywhere. Like those guys paid, oh, yeah, 20 bucks here, 20 bucks here. But I was like, oh, there was hundreds of dollars worth of goats there. And I was bugging. At the end of the day, we got back to camp, and I couldn't believe these doctors, mate. Oh, my God. Dropping pills, and I'm like, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're just having a um, pill to go to bed with. I'm like, wow, all right, I'm knackered. I'm going to, I'm, I'm buggered. I'm going to bed. Then they'll get up in the morning, have a pill to wake up with. <laughs> As you do, these doctors were unbelievable. But good guys, like I, I learned so much. Great guys to hunt with too, from a first aid point of view. If anything happens, but yeah, I could be as silly as I wanted. They're going to save my life. That's cool. <laughs> right at the right at the start of the conversation, you mentioned we were talking about hunt, catch, cook, and where it came about, and that you went over to the states on a bear hunting trip with one of your buddies. One, and for the people that are listening, which is everyone listening, you can't see the video, but right behind Jason is half a bear coming out of his wall in his roof. So can you run us through that story? Is that your only international trip and how did it come about? I've done a few international cooking trips. Uh, like I've been to Indonesia and cooking and stuff and bits and pieces, but I'm my only international hunting trip, yeah. Um, and I made some good mates out of it. But roll it back to um, got married. At, I was married at 21. Um, 30 years coming up uh, October the 10th, actually, another couple of days' time. But I haven't been married that long. I've been separated. So I was in, on my honeymoon in Cairns. And uh, if you've ever been to up in Cairns, they've got a little cable car thing that goes up to Granda, I think it is. And uh, I, was, I was on that little cable car on the way back and at a station. I was standing there waiting for the next uh, car to come along. And um, 
a few Americans in front of us and I said, hey, how you doing? And he's, oh, yeah, good, talking and that. And I said, oh, you're from America. You must be in hunting. And back then I was 21 years old. So uh, I was pretty naive and you must, you know, everyone in America hunts, right? He's, oh, yeah, he hunt. You know, oh, we hunt. That's good. And I said, what are you doing with yourselves? And they said, oh, we're off to Perth. I said, well, you've got to come uh, hunting with me in Perth. This will be fantastic. Great, great introduction to Australia. Come hunting. And, uh, oh, yeah, what do you hunt there? I said, oh, I don't know. I didn't want to take him anywhere good. <laughs> I said, oh, occasional kangaroo. Oh, that's my lifelong dream to shoot a kangaroo. I said, perfect. I've got tons of them, mate. Come and shoot them. So I took him up. But anyway, long story short, they came back and they stayed at our house and we were, you know, young, fresh bride and groom. And, and I said, come on, yeah, come hunting with us and stuff. So we're up hunting and we shot a kangaroo. I cut it up, went back to our place that night and ate this kangaroo or parts of it. I cut some steaks off and stuff. Absolutely enjoyed it. Loved it. thought it was amazing. He said, if I ever have to, I've got to repay you somehow. If you ever can get the time to come to America, come over and um, and we'll go hunting. And I said, yep, yeah, no problem at all. So fast forward another 20 years, I spent 17 years doing uh, FIFO in the mines uh, with hire cars and bus trips and, you know, plane trips and for 17 years. I had something like 180,000 frequent flyer points, and on my 40th birthday, I said to uh, the wife at the time, hey, I'm going to America for my 40th. See you later. So I went to America for a month, and um, when I was in the States, he said, oh, we've lined, the, um, we've lined this trip up for you. You've got to come bear hunting. And uh, I think that we, we did bear, uh, white-tailed deer, and goose hunting as well. So I went for a goose hunt. Lives in Michigan, uh, right on a lake. Absolutely, you know, beautiful people. Went for a goose hunt, got nothing uh, except getting wet. Went for a deer hunt. I fell asleep in the uh, tree stand. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. All done that. As you do, yeah, yeah. Well, that's welcome, you know, from Australia. You sit in the tree stand, nice and dark and cold. And, yeah, I was fast asleep with a shotgun. It was fantastic. I think I got a selfie and that was about all I got. And, um, yeah, and then we went for a couple of weeks up the north or upper peninsula in Michigan and um, went for a bear hunt. And lo and behold, I've got a bear, shot it with a forty-four Magnum with a handgun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, what do you want to do with it? And I said, oh, no, I've got to mount it in some crazy mount. This will be fantastic. So I had it mounted and um, really eager, rang up the wife at the time, said, hey, I've shot a bear. Woo! Yeah, yeah, I shot this bear. She said, it's good. Uh, what are you doing with it? I said, well, I ate it. We ate the bear and we had a good fat. It's beautiful meat, absolutely lovely meat. Um, I said, I'll get it into a shoulder mount or a chest mount. Well, they call it chest mount over there. Um, we'll get it into a chest mount. And she said, uh, what? And I said, well, I want it mounted so I can stick it on the wall. She said, okay, uh, either you come back or that bear comes back. Uh, and I like my heart sunk at the time. Went, oh, but yeah, but, you know, come on, I've got to bring it back. It's a... It's a memento. She said, I don't want a bear in the house. And I said, okay, rightio. So I said to my mate over there, I said, look, just here, here's the money for the mount. Um, can you just keep it? Can you keep it over here? Can you keep it over here, mate? And he said, yep, no problem at all. So fast forward another, I think, seven, seven eight years after that, and we've had we've divorced, so split, and hence the bear's in my house. So Now, I don't want to. Things work out. I don't really want to pry well. too much, but. Was that the reason for the split? No. <laughs> it was time the bear came home and that was it? No, mate. No, no. It actually wasn't. No, it wasn't the reason for the split. She's still she's a lovely lady, but no. As soon as it happened, that bear came, was on its way. 
Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not that ruthless. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. But it's a bloody good bear. It is. I was just looking at it and appreciating it. I've been doing it the whole time and I've just... I like the pose it's got too. I'm sure we can get a picture of Jace. Have you got some trophy photos of it or from back in the day? Oh, mate, I've got hair back then. You're probably pretty crap photos, so hey? you really – because they're, they're taken on the old camera. So I've taken photos of photos, but I might be able to flick the one through. Jason, be careful what photos you send, mate, especially if you, you know, you've changed your appearance because I put one up with the mud crab the other day and I got torn to shreds on social media by Dodge. And, you know, saying, oh, come on, mate, look how skinny you are. You've eaten a lot of bloody crab. And then a couple of our listeners got involved as well. Like, Then it started. It's fine. I only rocked in the corner and cried myself to sleep. Didn't matter, though. Like, they were all good. <laughs> but uh, just be careful. I want to give you that tip. My my listeners, my social page is pretty good. Like, they know that to take the piss out of me. And I'm always, um, you know, one of my rules when I get in the kitchen and I do a live, I do quite a lot of live shows as well in my kitchen, as you may well know. And... um. The, the first thing I do when I start in the kitchen is crack a beer or pour a drink, and it's really good. So everyone thinks I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic venison eater because I just <laughs> I cook that much deer or wild pig, yeah. But it's okay. I don't mind. And they all take – I'll get it constantly now, like, oh, where's your – the first comment will be, where's your drink? And like, what are you – or what are you drinking? Mm. Don't worry about what you're cooking. It's just, oh, what are you drinking, Joe's? So, no, it's pretty cool. I don't mind. I don't mind. On your drinks, what is your favourite beer? It's got to be a bush. It, it, actually, it's a West Australian mother's milk, mate. It's yeah, but I don't mind. Like I'm, I'm that or either that or a rum. But um, yeah, it has to be it has to be an emu export for sure. I think I saw that in Aldi for sale for a bucket can the other week. It's awesome. <laughs> That's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> That's expensive, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> I'm on the uh, – I love rum. Actually, while we're recording this, I'm on the Krakens because I've, uh, I've s- switched over to the dark side after a few beers. But uh, Dodge doesn't drink that much, and he's actually drinking tonight. So just be careful, listeners. I think he's on his second. He hits three, and he's just – it's a slurathon. So we'll try and keep him under wraps for you, but uh, can't promise. Last time Matt saw me drinking, I was recording with Yannick, and we were chasing a bottle of rum. So we're chasing a bottle of rum down the... In WA as well. Yeah, down the hallways of a hotel. Wow. Was, uh, made for interesting content. Wow. Great guy. Got a lot of respect for the man. You mentioned there a minute ago about, you know, your listeners and followers while, you know, you're recording live, they're into you about your beer and things. You know, we're, we're starting that. We haven't been on this journey too long, but it's starting to build that community and that feeling of, you know, we're coming into people's ears and people's homes and... It's a it's a strange feeling knowing that someone you've never met knows you quite well because you know I've followed you for a while I've met you in person but I followed you online I've seen your videos I, I know your quirks and your mannerisms and things and it's a weird feeling that yeah you've built this community and you know there's people that look up to you Jason and appreciate what you do and yeah it's just uh, it's interesting knowing that those people are going to you know keep talking about you and keep you in their lives you're right thanks man that i appreciate that it is a little bit of a, a weird feeling in a, in a sense but i i set out for this this journey was set out in the fact that i could come into people's homes and i could teach them and that's exactly what i've done and when you say oh you, you've known me for a long time this is through then you meet people and you make friendships with people like you know traveling uh, as i've done traveling doing my shows and that and you meet 
like, like I said, lifelong friends you meet through that community. And I wish, I wish that so many more people uh, could do that. You know, it could be this could be anything really. When you when you look at it in that sense, you know, it might be bloody lawn bowls or anything. It could be, but it's a hunting community. That's what it is. And people people fail to realise that it's a hunting community. I've got to tell you a little story of my, um, my good mate that I went on my uh, buff hunt with. <laughs> And it was pretty. It was pretty cool. A really good guy, and I didn't know at the times. Well, I knew. I knew he had a couple of daughters, but um, we went on a bus hunt, and I started messaging messaging his daughters, um, and just because it was family, I was sending them photos of dad and what dad was doing. And um, when I got back, I continued the messaging with um, his oldest daughter, and that's just turned into a relationship, and it's absolutely brilliant. How does he feel about that? He's really good with it. He's really good with it because now it's actually the fact that I'm teaching her to hunt as well or getting her into bow hunting. So it's a, it's a um, therefore, it's going to be an interest that I've got that she's interested in. And it's a connection that she'll be able to relay back to or reconnect or not reconnect, but connect back with dad. Uh, and just, let's say a common interest. It's bringing another person into that thing that you do into your passion. And it's really, really good. I enjoy that sort of thing. But I didn't set out to do that. I didn't set out to catch up with the, my mate's daughter for that fact. It was more, um, yeah, that, it's just funny how it happened and, and it's worked out really well. So that's the kind of inspiration well i say the inspiration about hunting hunting's like that it's just it's it's really really cool how does your mate feel about the fact that he couldn't get his daughter to hunt but now you can (laughs) he obviously wasn't a good enough teacher or well she used to hunt no not really she used to hunt with him um you know as obviously growing up as a as a as a kid and and that you know she's obviously gone through motherhood and and so forth and and raised kids herself um you know, granddad's always been there in their lives and, and wanted to take them out. I never really worried about what mum was doing for the fact that she was busy raising a family or she was doing her own thing. So I've come along now and, and it's kind of, when I said, I mentioned the word reconnection, it's kind of then bringing it back into what it used to be. You know, those memories are coming back. So, oh, you know, and she, and quite often um, my partner says, oh, I, Oh yeah, I used to do that with dad. Or I used to, yeah, I used to do that. That'd be cool. That's cool. So it's you know, I'm I'm just getting, I'm making a re-inspired. If you you, you know, sounds to me like you're doing God's work. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe I'll see God. <laughs> maybe I see God well before I should. <laughs> so I find it interesting. Like my wife, so she likes your Facebook page, but she's not one for killing animals. So it's a bit of a dilemma in this household because... Okay, what about drinking? Oh, <laughs> loves alcohol. Just follow me for drinking and cooking. That's cool. I think that's one of the really good things that I've seen come about from people like yourself, that engaging the community that might not be hunters, but doing a really good job of getting them to associate with the lifestyle like so yeah i mean i think that's dodger said it before we don't need more hunters we just need more people that's uh, a pro hunter as opposed to anti-hunter and i feel that your job you're doing a really good job with that because as i said my wife's not a big fan of hunting loves eating game meat but will never ever pull the trigger i don't think i'll ever get her to pull the trigger on anything 
but she's not opposed to eating because she thinks it's delicious. So I think you're doing a really good job there. Have you got any stories of people that have engaged in hunting or engaged in even just eating game meat on the back of finding you and learning about what you do? Well, I've tricked a hell of a lot of people. Don't worry about that. I've been on, um, I was on site and um, these people, I was coming, I was new on site and these people have been talking me up to this regional manager or I don't know, she was a superintendent or something or other, this lady. And she said, um, I heard you cook. And she said, I've seen some videos and stuff and blah, blah, blah. you'll have to cook us lasagna. And I said, oh yeah, and, but I've got this beautiful uh, kangaroo lasagna recipe. So I use kangaroo instead of beef. It's just got so much more flavour in it and it works really well as a lasagna because you can taste that deep kangaroo flavour in it and it doesn't overpower. It's got the tomato and the onions and so forth. It doesn't. It just tastes like a better beef. She said, oh, you should cook a heap of lasagnas for this meeting that's coming up, uh, but I don't want any of that shit that you kill. Just, just cook beef lasagna. I said, yeah, no worries at all. Not a problem. So I went home. And I'll cook six trays of kangaroo lasagna. Like hell, I'm going to cook beef for her. But anyway, six trays of it, put it in the freezer and took it up there on a site plane the, the next couple of weeks. So I said, there you go. I made all these lasagnas for you. you know? And she, oh, fantastic. That's great. You know, and she took it to this meeting and they heated them all up and that. And everyone, all these executives of the mine site had this lasagna. I didn't know at the time. I didn't know. I thought she was just going to eat one every now and then. But she's cooked all of them up fed like maybe 30 people these trays of lasagna. This is a chef friend. Anyway, got back the next day and she said, oh, that lasagna, that beef lasagna was beautiful, absolutely magic. I said, uh, yeah, you weren't eating beef. That kangaroo lasagna was the best you've ever had, eh? And she's like, oh, my God, are you f-ing kidding me? She went off her head. I said, well, okay, did you spit it out? <laughs> she said, no, it was beautiful. So well, there you go. So don't knock it until you try it. Now she's a big fan. Like now she's, yeah, I still catch up. Now she's great. So it's kind of, I, I like seeing people's reactions, you know, when you, you, you feed them something. And just for instance, I had a hunting property uh, just recently and I was trapping pigs on it. And they have a, there's an accommodation thing down there that they, they have foster children come in and a community down there. And she said, oh, we're having an open day. So is there any chance that you can bring some of your wild game meat down and just show the kids and, and maybe give them a try? I took a couple of kilo, I think it was about five kilo of bloody wild pork sausages down there, mango and chilli sausages that I'd – it was out of the pigs that I'd hunt straight off a property. I just put it through the mincer and give them back to her. Absolutely brilliant. And it's just cemented – all it's done is cemented me being able to go down there and hunt pigs on there or trap pigs on there forever and a day. I'll be either dead or she'll sell the property, one of the two. And it's just kind of – that's what hunting's all about. People don't realise that there's little niches in hunting – and when it comes to the food, that's a way to get people into hunting, you know. If all the people that went hunting on property say, oh, well, as you said, Dodge, oh, you know, it's very hard to get properties over here. Imagine going onto a property, shooting the animal and giving it back to the farmer and saying, hey, try this, mate. I've made salamis out of it or I made this out of it. And he said, oh, yeah, what? or he'll just say, hey, would you like to try these sausages I made? He said, oh, thanks for that. You know, that's for letting me uh, hunt on your property. Oh, yeah, what were they? That was all the stuff that I shot off your property, mate. Didn't cost me anything. When it comes to food, it highlights a sense, right? And it's obviously a memory. Senses are memories, right? So, you know, that, that taste sense, that, that smell sense, and that highlights, oh, remember those sausages that old mate gave us? Or remember that, yeah, what were they? Oh, yeah, that was the shit that he just shot off our property. 
Yeah, that was, they were good, weren't they? Yeah, let's get him back to do some more shooting. And that's how, that's how hunting should develop. So that's a really good point you made there because we've had a chat about this on the podcast previously about how do you go about introducing people to game meat? And for me, I don't want to really smother it with like sauce and do like a ragu or anything like that. I like to keep it pretty simple, a little bit of salt and pepper, a little bit of breadcrumb and flour, flash fry and butter. And because I want to highlight the game meat because it is a flavor that does need, you know, people need to get a bit used to because if they've never had it, it can be a bit different. But for someone that has so much experience in cooking, how do you go about introducing new people to game meat? And what are some tips for other hunters, especially as you just said, linking it back to the farmer, taking it and saying, hey, I've got a cost saving for you. Here's some free meat. It's the animals I took off your property. Yeah. So what if, um, okay, let's look at it at the other way, right? So what if uh, you had to introduce people into the flavors of game meat, you made it taste like something else that they're, they're familiar with. So your introduction is like not so left of page. Your introduction is very close to their taste buds that they've tried something before. It tastes exactly like that. So you're saying, hey, try this rabbit and it just tastes like, and what you're going to do is make it exactly as best you can like Kentucky Fried Chicken. For instance, you've shot a rabbit, you've done it in the KFC spices, try this, right? And in their mind, straight away, in their sight, they've seen KFC. In their taste, it tastes like KFC. You understand? So you've introduced that game meat to them, exactly what something they're used to, but something most 99.9% of people like KFC. I know there's a few that don't, but so it's But you've given them a bit of rabbit, and they say, oh, do you like that? You know, you can even say to them, do you like the chicken? That doesn't taste like chicken. No, it's not, mate. It's rabbit. I just shot it. I've never thought of it that way. It's just an introduction into game meat. Oh, wow. This tastes just like chicken. I said, well, why don't you you come hunting with us and we'll get a few more and we'll make some more. Oh, yeah. Now, it cost me nothing too. Free KFC for everyone, you know, and they're like, wow, how cool is that? Don't throw that out with Dodge around, mate. You'll be in trouble. He moved to WA. It's that sort of mindset that you try and, don't get them to taste game meat. Get them to taste something that's similar to what they like and you will introduce them into game meat well quicker than you will trying to freak them out with a different taste they're not used to. Yeah, I've never considered that, but if you break it down into three three sort of areas, sort of breaking down your comments there, you've got taste, you've got sight, and you've got perception. And if you can, if they can perceive it's something they've already eaten and it looks like something they've already eaten, but you're only changing a third of it, then it's much easier to yeah to convince or initially to trick possibly, but uh, definitely to convince. No, that's a good point. That's a sort of concept I try to instill in my stage shows as well. When I do a stage show, you know, I'll, although I'll mess around with the recipes and that, and I'll do something a little bit different, but that's the sort of thing I try and do uh, for stage shows. And I try and, although it's all game meat, people know that, I try and, Keep the simple flavours, keep the flavours the same as people can recognise, you know, that tastes like, oh, and I get that quite often, they stand at the stage and they eat it, oh, that tastes like such and such, you know, um, Who would, and you're doing basic dishes, I don't overcomplicate the dishes either, and people look at it, and even in my cookbooks, all the, the recipes in my cookbooks are very, very basic with the things you would have in your in your pantry, if you start overcomplicating things, you need to make something to add to the ingredient or be a part of the ingredient, people don't want to do it. 
you want to go out and shoot something and you, and in the back of your mind, I've shot something. It's my little bit of a trophy. I've done it myself. Now I want to share that trophy with my family and friends. I want to, I want to show them how excited I am and give them a taste of the excitement. So what you're going to do is come home with that bit of meat and how am I going to cook it? I know, I'll just throw it straight in the pan and then I'll taste it. It tastes like game meat. They'll go, oh, that's Now, as they said, oh, you, you cook it and it tastes like the spaghetti bolognese they had last night. They'll go, oh, man, that's awesome. That's like the spaghetti we had. Come and try this. You know, come and try this, husband. Come and try this, kids, or whatever. That's just like the spaghetti I made you last night, but it's heaps better. Yeah, and you say, oh, here's a photo of it. I just shot it. It was great. And, and that's where you start convincing people how good that your hunting is or how good that your trophy is or acceptance into what you do. And it's quite simple, really, but and that's what I'm trying to instill with people. I think that's a really good point. I've never actually thought about it that way. I've always, I guess my own psyche is I will eat anything because somewhere in the world it's a delicacy. So that's how I approach everything, and a lot of people don't do that. So, yeah, it's very interesting that I haven't thought about it that way, but it does make a lot of sense for me anyway. Have you tried Singapore's national dish? <laughs> well, boiled rice and chicken. I think he cooks a lot better than that, Dodge. What a boring dish. Sorry, Singapore, but come on. Mate, we've got listeners in Singapore. Good on you. Well done. <laughs> yeah, well, to the less than 1%, pick your game up because either in your cooking or your listenings. Share it to your friends. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a bit harsh. <laughs> we've just lost Singapore. <laughs> uh, their rice is ready. So you were talking about salami. You've mentioned it a few times. It's not something I've ever played with, but I have heard a few people mention that it is or it can be dangerous in some capacity. I've heard that term thrown around, you know, underdone or if done right, obviously not. But where do people go wrong? Um, it's a fermented fermentation process, right? Like, um, So it's a, it's a curing of a meat. Where can it go wrong? It can go wrong in a few little places. However, at the end of the day, if it doesn't taste any good, throw it out. Don't put all your eggs in one basket and throw it out. Like I've done, um, just for instance, okay, so this season, only a few weeks ago, I pulled them all down off the clothesline out the back. Now, I'm in Western Australia, so our temperature range fluctuates quite often and it's very hard to do salamis, especially game meat, in Western Australia because the fat content is not there in game meat. So you're doing game meat salami and the temperature fluctuates, so it's very hard to do. But I had a crack at it anyway. So I've done my first one was uh, wild pork, and I've done wild pork salami. And with that wild pork, no problem at all. That was good. I did that first, and I had it hanging for a week. And then I shot another pig in the trap, and I've thrown it through the mincer and done another wild pork salami. This time I've used Vegemite in it. So when I put it in the, the Vegemite in, it was a little bit salty, but it wasn't too bad. At the end of the six, I think I had it uh, curing for six weeks. The wild pork seemed to be, um, sorry, the the Vegemite seemed to dry out a lot quicker than the wild pork. I don't know why, but I've cut them down, chopped it up. Wild pork, absolutely beautiful, tiny, a little bit too salty. The one with Vegemite in tastes like shit. Just it tastes maybe not not enough fat, a little bit sour. I threw them all out. So it's it's a hit and miss with good recipes and with all my recipes. What I need to do and I sometimes uh, let myself down on this because I'm doing so many recipes, I'm doing so much cooking, and I, I let myself down on this. 
I need to write the recipes down. And I have books and books and books full of my recipes. That's why it was quite easy to write a couple of cookbooks because I've got them all written down. But I need to concentrate more on writing. And I, I say that to people, listen, if you're going to try something with game meat, especially making sausages, write it down. Because it's so easy to make a small adjustment of, oh, that was too salty, put a little bit less salt in, or that didn't have enough of this, or that tastes like absolute crap. Let's use something different, yeah. So importantly, write write your recipe down. But when it comes to salamis, that's probably the main thing. Write would be write the recipe down and keep having to try it until you get it right. Temperature does play a big part in it, especially over where you fluctuate. You know, your heat fluctuates, but... On the eastern seaboard, yeah, it's, you know, it's very well known that a lot of people make venison salami over there, definitely, and it's bloody beautiful. Referring to recipe on the salami side of things, are we talking like grams? Grams make the difference. Like if you're adding, you know, certain elements and you're, you know, five or ten grams out, is that going to make a, a huge difference? Um, I'm not talking meat, meat content. I'm talking the flavourings or the... No, not definitely not, no. No, because really you can have, um, you know, when it comes to that, uh, a little bit of salt, you know, the old Italian way, salt, pepper, um, and some pork, and that's pretty much how they did it, put it into skin, and uh, and they go by handfuls, mate. They just throw handfuls in, and old, old Italian blokes, they, they do it, and they, they know how much to put in, and they measure it by handfuls. So Grant, when it comes to grams, it's not too bad, mate. No. Obviously, it's coming across that I've never done the salami side of things. I've done my fair share of butchering and mincing and things like that. If if we were to put together a little beginner's home, not butchery pack, meat processing pack, you know, four or five things that would just be essential to hunters that actually want to start consuming their meat. I'm not talking knife and fork, but is there some, and we're not talking big ticket items like huge minces and things, Aldi and that run the cheaper minces and whatnot, but, you know, just some some things that I know, I know I'm going to throw one in there, which is there's a sort of is it a folding gambrel from Hunt Catch Cook that might still be available? Yeah, it is, mate. I, I have. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my first uh, ticket. Um, the folding, the folding gambrel, definitely. So I've got to roll it back here a little bit, and and it's a good point, Dodge. But where it comes to taking meat home for the family, what you need to consider first is the start of the process is through the rifle scope or when you're out in the field. And the best way, if you can keep that meat clean, get it off the ground, butcher it with a little bit of care, um, you know, use some gloves, use some sharp knives, put it in some bags, bring it home. Half your battle is one. The clean meat, you know, you don't want to get it home. It's got leaves and dirt all over it. It's got a big bullet wound in it. You know, oh, you know blood all over it. Or there's a, you've just got a half the animal sack all over the thing. It's... Yeah, it's still got skin on it or hair or, you know, there's factors like that you've got to consider. So, for instance, a folding gamble, that's why I designed that. I designed the, the folding gamble so you can get the meat off the ground and I've got a little knife roll that, uh, with the butcher's knives in them and a little steel and that helps you get that stuff off the ground. It's the first step in taking it home to your family. Secondly is, you know, when you get it home and, and trying to preserve that meat, things like, um, you know, that little Aldi mincer or, you know, a good chopping board, a cry, make one of those little cheap cryback machines so you can start crybacking your meat, have it last a little bit longer, uh, and that sort of thing. It works well. It's, it's, all, it's all investment when it comes to feeding your family. Absolutely. It's, you know, butcher shop doesn't just 
uh, go out in the paddock, shoot something, drag the cow in and start selling to you over the counter. They've got ways of preparing the meat. So you need to start thinking, yeah, okay, that's how they do it. This is what I need to do. Maybe you have some trays and tubs available. You can, uh, you know, the fridge space. You've got to, when you're out hunting, you're, well, where am I going to put this? Whose freezer am I going to put this in? Whose fridge am I going to put it in? Where can I put it? Maybe have a second fridge you can turn on, uh, you know, somewhere out of the way in the garage or something that when you go hunting, look, I'll just flick it on. I'll get it cold when I come back. I know there's fridge space there uh, that I can utilise. If I haven't shot anything, I'll just turn it off again. You know, the old beer fridge or whatever. You, yeah, there's certainly amount of things you have to think about when you, when you go hunting. So that's a good one. And I'd really like to ask because especially for new hunters or people that maybe even thought about the the meat quality and keeping it from a safety perspective. How do you, when you harvest an animal, transport it home? Because there's so many different ways. I've heard of people that, like I think Dodge doesn't mind if it goes in a bit of a slurry with water and ice and the meat gets wet. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, I wouldn't do that. I have ice bricks and put it in a big esky and have sort of like a rack yeah. that keeps it uh, like off so it doesn't get wet. How do you do it personally? So I've got... Um... I've got some big, I don't know if people are going to be familiar with them, but in the mining industry, there's big green plastic bags and I'll throw the meat in those bags and they're heavy duty, like a, they're, they're called a sample bag. So they put soil samples in these big green, you can see through them, but they've got a green tinge on and they're heavy duty bags and I'll, I'll cut the meat up. Most of the meat's got, you know, the hair taken off it already and, you know, it's been hanging up. Maybe overnight, if I've shot it that day, I'll, I'll put a blanket over it, a wet towel over it, get it up off the ground overnight, it cools down, then cut it up from there, put it in these green bags, and then onto ice in an esky. So it's it's not touching the ice, but it's getting cold in the ice on in these green bags. So I haven't got a I haven't got a slurry happening. I haven't got any water on that meat, but I've just got it in the bag. It's getting cold. There'll blood come out of that. Blood will come out of the meat still. Uh, and it'll sit in the bag. But once you get it home, take it out, and then you can finish the butchering process then once you get it home. And then, yeah, obviously hang it, cryback it or whatever, and um, into the freezer or fridge, yeah, wherever you need. So that's personally how I do it. A lot of people um, do it different to me. A lot of people hang it for a few days, or put it in the fridge for a couple of days. Um, I've had, you know, pigs that I bought home. We weren't far away at all from my house. Um, shot a pig, gutted it, and and left the skin on, and brought it home, hung it in the back patio, and skinned it in the back patio, cut it up, put it in the fridge straight away. So, just depends on where I am and what I'm doing, and how far away from home I am. But even okay, so what's the most distance I've been is Northern Territory from Perth, so three days away, three and a half days drive, and yeah, that's how I bought the meat home. And, and that's in bags with ice. Two things following on from that. You mentioned three and a half days. It definitely would have been a long trip because you couldn't put your foot down with a broken foot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good way to get out of the driving on that trip too. No, I still drive. Mate. He's, a, he's, a hard, he's a hard taskmaster. Yeah, I still, I still drive, mate, yeah. And hanging meat. I'm going to pull up on that for a second and unpack that for a little while. I love hanging meat for 10 to 21 days mostly because I'm too busy in life. So I have a cool room and it gives me the ability to cut it up when I'm ready. Yeah. But I also understand it has benefits. Are you an avid believer in the hanging? You obviously just mentioned there that, you know, you do some, some you don't, just depends on and what you're doing at the time. 
Have you noticed any noticeable difference? No. <laughs> no. Okay, uh, right. Not with, when it's hanging meat, um, I usually bring it home, butcher it, and put it into a tray in the bottom of my fridge. Although, as long as you don't let it pool in a, in a bath of blood, you're pretty much right. As a rule, I don't usually do it, only because of the simple fact that I haven't got the hanging space. And who has? Who's got a meat, who's got a fridge there they can just hang? You know, I, I, have, I have got a little bit of hanging space, but not much. Yeah, I have the luxury of a cool room, so. Yeah, so the, but the average person doesn't have a cool room. And, you know, if I go and put myself, and I'll, yeah, everyone said, oh, why don't you get a cool room? I've got a big fridge, but it's full of beer. But the average person doesn't have that luxury. And if I'm going to show the average person on how to utilize the best out of their game, mate, I want to put it in a normal fridge. I'll just be like everyone else. And if I can do it, you can do it. And, and that's how, I, yeah, that's kind of. The way I'm going, I could get an industrial fridge or, you know, get a, uh, you know, industrial cool room in the shed or something, but it just wouldn't be the same. So I've done my um, TAFE. Do you guys have TAFE in WA? Yes. Yeah, we do, mate. <laughs> okay, cool. We're not all plastic, but. No, look, it wasn't a can, shot at you. Can you was... read? Oh, hold on. It's called New South Wales TAFE over here. I don't know if there's a WA TAFE or it's called something different. I wasn't having a shot there. So <laughs> no, cool. I did my cool, <laughs> I did my kangaroo harvesting accreditation course over here through New South Wales TAFE to sell it to chillers. Yeah. And one of the big ones was they talk about obviously hunting of a night. You have to get it to a chiller within a couple of hours of daylight. So basically trying to minimize the amount of time the meat after being shot has been exposed to any sort of heat. Now, you being in WA, I, I can see that being a massive problem with the temperature just over there. Have you ever had any meat spoil? Has that been an issue that you face because your temperatures are a lot higher than ours here in New South Wales? And it is something that really worries me when I harvest game. Yeah, of course. So just running back on that, most of our all our roo shooting is done at night time. So they will transport the roo overnight pretty much, you know, the early morning. And we won't even they won't even go back to a chiller until quite early in the morning. So you've got you've got that our, you know, that period when when the carcasses are hanging on the back of the ute or the truck or whatever it may be, and they're just getting air, you know, they're getting the cool air in them, so they're cooling down that way. But yeah, same sort of rule. It's the same. I think that rule is Australia wide. However, when you say meat spoilage, yeah, you've got to be, you have to be cautious of it. Definitely have to be cautious of it. However, body temperature of an animal is up around what's it? I don't know. Average body temperature is sort of forty something plus. Well, we're thirty-seven. Yeah, thirty-seven. Yeah, I'm no, I'm no doctor. I've, I hung around with them a few times, and but I'm not. Yeah. So obviously, when you, um, when when you're hunting, uh, if you can get the guts out and and get it prepped pretty much straight away as quick as you can, the body's cooling down already. And when it comes to hunting, best time to hunt early morning, late at night. So obviously, feeding times, you know, hunting times. Middle of the day, middle of summertime, 40 degrees, you're not really going to be out too much. Uh, you know, you hunt around water sources, obviously, if it, if it may be pigs or goats or something like that. But, um, you know, even in the desert regions, you're going up there shooting goats and, and you get the guts out and uh, bring them back, hang them under a tree, put a cloth on them, keep them cool that way, or butcher them up the best you can. And as I said, put them in a bag, put them in the esky, put them on ice, or try and keep them cool, you know, uh, in a shed. I've I've done that before too. Been out hunting goats and taken them back to the shearing shed, hung them up inside the shearing shed. It's got a nice cool breeze in it, and um, let the 
breeze blow through it and just had a cover over them or like a meat cover and um, and then cut them up late that night or, or uh, early the next morning, yeah. We were talking just, was it last night or the night before, you and I were having a bit of a chat on the phone about the possibility of a camel hunt over in Perth in late January. And the first thing you said to me was, you're an idiot. Yep. The second thing you said to me was, you're going to sweat, you idiot. So, like, I, yeah, it, it is it possible. It's definitely possible. What are we going to do for meat, though? We're just going to have to. Um, obviously, eskies and ice. Can you still buy block ice at roadhouses and things? Is that a thing? You can buy block ice, but even, okay, put a bit of, what about the um, the uh, station, that sort of thing? If they've got a cool room, if you can go back to a station and say, listen, can you hold on to a little bit of meat for us? while we keep going or make it, you know, like all good hunts, trip planning um, and go through and, and plan it out a little bit better um, and see how you go with that way, you know. Um, yeah, it, it does get it does get pretty uh, hot, uh, especially, yeah, and, and, you know, in, in, out where you're camel hunting in desert country. But if you can get to the point where you're taking some ice with you, uh, well, well and truly, you know, get a, a good-sized esky and take a bloody lot of ice, you can tip the water out and use that water as drinking water. You know, that's water you don't have to take. So using the ice, melted ice as drinking water or boiling water or water to, you know, live on. And uh, you still a little bit of remnants of the ice in there. You're throwing the meat on top of it, at least let it cool down, throwing the meat on top and you're heading back the next day sort of thing. You're making, making tracks to, to head towards ice in the next few days. Not too bad. I think it's just more of planning than anything. You mentioned their trip planning. It's definitely something... I really enjoy doing. It's why I do the the booking agency for the guiding. I enjoy the the organisational thing. What have you got planned up? You did mention you've got a few trips booked for next year. What's uh, what's on the cards for Jason? So oh, definitely on the cards. I, I think um, I think my mate's going to want to go uh, Northern Territory again. And and as soon as we got back, we're kind of planning that trip uh, for the next trip. When we got back, he said. Let's do it again. This time we'll do a little bit different and we'll take a trailer with us. And um, I've got a trailer set up with a kitchen in it. Um, so it's like a, a camp kitchen and we can uh, – it's got a few fridges in it as well. So we'll have more fridge space in that sense. We'll have a fridge uh, that we can – well, what we did with that as well, when you say block ice, we were freezing water bottles or three-litre milk bottles full of water and turning them into blocks of ice. And then when those we'll put them in the esky, um, so we'd use the fridge, just a normal car fridge, turned into a freezer. We'd have two fridges, one fridge, one freezer. We'd freeze the block ice, then put it into a fridge with the meat and cool that meat down, or into an esky with the meat, and then once it melted, take it back out and refreeze it again. So we we were swapping around all the time, had solar panels going, all that sort of thing. So that's what we'll do. That's on the next trip. That just reminded me, that just jolted my memory on when you said block ice. So that's another good way to preserve that game, mate. So that's what's coming up beginning of, uh, sorry, end of next year uh, or sometime next year and also a camel hunt as well. One of my mates said, oh, I've got, he's got a good camel spot and um, wants to come out and we'll do some camels. So uh, definitely camels and I can dare say buff. And I've just met a partner that's interested in bow hunting. So there's going to be lots of local goats, uh, lots of pigs, um, some time spent on the bow. There's all summer to come as well, so I've got fishing involved for me. We'll see where that turns out. I really haven't been for a dive for a long time, so I want to get into some diving. So 
uh, end of this year, beginning of next, you know, the January, February sort of thing. I'll be underwater for quite a lot of it. Crabs will be running. I'll be down getting crabs. Uh, marin season in between that as well. So I'll be down into some local dams getting some marin. And I dare say uh, February as well, there's foxes on uh, in, in the outer wheat belt. So with the foxes comes, I'll, I'll um, put some nets in the local dams, get some yabbies as well. So I'll get a feed of yabbies and some rabbits and bits and pieces on the way down there too. And so it's a pretty busy, it's going to be a pretty busy year. Hunting always is kind of busy for me. It takes up quite a lot of my life. But definitely the two bigger trips, uh, the camel, I want to get back into some camels and um, and buff again. I want to be back on some buff. That was good fun. It wasn't too bad. It was pretty hard. I had a broken foot at the time, um, but it wasn't too bad. It was all right. So one thing you said there about the ice and a bit of a tip for our listeners is I originally started out with those three-litre milk bottles and I've moved over to, oh, I can't think of the name of it, but if you go to Coles and Woolies, they generally have like a five-litre water bottle. And I think it's called like Aqua Cooler or something along those lines. But the larger the bottle, the longer the ice takes to melt. So I've always found, I've got a quite a large Esky and it's a Yeti and Dodgers made fun of my Yeti previously, but it's big enough to hold probably two deer, I'd say, once like if you quarter them out and, and cut them up. Um, if you actually took out the bones, you boned them out, it would take a lot more. But I find the five-litre water bottles are the way to go because the ice lasts a lot longer. So I can get multiple days out of that because that's one of the big ones for me. I went a couple of times and I took the three-litre milk bottles and I found, geez, they melted quick, especially in hot weather. So one of the hunts I did uh only probably about 12 months ago was in 40 plus weather and though even that was in the esky the esky was in the shade they lasted a day and a half at best and that was a good esky too it's not a cheap one so that's my little tip for our listeners is the bigger the block of ice you can get the better for the longevity of the ice and at the end of the day you want that to keep cool the meat down as quick as possible especially in that extreme heat Definitely. If you can get that, um, you know, and that's what we did. If you can get those ice into your esky, uh, your meat's already cooled down. If you've got it, you know, hang it outside overnight or whatever, pull those big, big chunks, you know, those primal cuts off, put them into an esky with blocks of ice. And when those blocks of ice melt, then straight back into a freezer and try a refreeze. So you're running an esky and a, or running a freezer and a fridge and an esky, you're laughing. Yeah, you could. If you've got room for it, well, then why not? That's. That's where you can go out the long distances anyway in that, you know, that camel trip. Um, some solar panels that'll keep that, you know, those fridges and freezers running. You shouldn't have too much trouble. No, I agree with that. And one little tip back on to Matt's tips is I have designated eskies. So one will be our food esky with a little bit of ice in it. And the other one doesn't get opened. It's only opened for meat. It stays frozen because it's when you open it up and expose it to the warm air, that's when you know, cold air escapes, warm air gets in, you lose a few degrees, sets you back a little bit. So if you've got the space to designate a different esky, you know, purely just for ice, you'll hold that ice. Absolutely. And once again, Dodge, as, as you said, and you agree with it, planning is key, mate. Planning on all of it is key. So, yeah, I agree. I know a tip that one um, – oh, I can't remember where I got it. It was from one TV show in the States. 
the way they do it is they have the ice esky and they lay a towel over it. And everybody in hunt camp knows if it's got a towel on it, that esky is not to be open because that's purely to cool down the game meat. I think that's a really good idea and communicating that with any hunting partners so people aren't going to it and changing up and losing that sort of cold air that's kept in there by the esky. Well, we did exactly that same thing, Matt. Um, you know, in the Territory, we had a, a silver tarpaulin and we laid the silver tarp over the top of it. And, you know, that's the esky that, you know, as much as you can cover that, although it's an esky, it's going to get residual heat from it. You're still heating up the outside. You're still heating up the plastic, even at night time. That'll still be hot. If you can lay something over the top of your esky, you can get a little bit of shade and put it in the shade of it. It's like... If you were trying to sleep in the middle of the sun, you know, you, you've got to put a shelter over the top of you and um, you'll get to sleep a bit quicker. So exactly right. You need to rest that ice, you need to exactly uh, cover it up and you'll rest it easy. You mentioned the the folding gamble and what else is for sale on the Hunt Catch Cook website? Also knife roll, was it? Yeah, so I do. A, um, the folding gamble is fits into a knife roll. That, the knife roll has got a little bit of an extra large pocket in it. So it's a little bit wider than a normal knife that's the only reason and i've had the knife roll made uh it also fits a, a small seven inch steel down the side of it uh skinning and boning just any generic skinning and boning blade but however i do sell them it comes you know some of my packages come with skinning and boning knives through my sponsors so i've got a sponsor um aos australian outdoor supplies or aussie outback supplies sorry and they make their own knives side cut knives really good quality cutlery and I know they're good because I've used them. I've cut buffalo up with them, and they're really, really good. I do that, and it works well. It just works It works well together with the uh, gamble to go in it. The normal stuff that you see on Facebook pages, so I do some shirts and, and knives and, you know, uh, hunting knives sort of thing and, um, you know, the old stickers and, and caps and bits and pieces. But, yeah, mainly um, – and I've sold two, uh, two of my cookbooks as well. So if you want some really good recipes, I've – I've written two cookbooks, so um, I sell them as well. And they're pretty popular. They are very popular, actually. On those cookbooks, for our listeners, we are going to give away a couple of them. So watch our socials. Keep on there. Jump over to www.endlesspursuit.com.au for your chance to win a couple of the Hunt, Catch, Cook books. I think they're very valuable. And I know that Dodge and I are going to be grabbing our own copies because – it's something that I've been wanting to do, but this is the perfect chance to do it and get a couple there for not only us, but our listeners as well. Also, keep an eye out for cookbook number three. And I think it was page four, you were saying, it was the Fox Fettuccine going to feature? We'll make the cover. I've seen your little uh, videos and things lately. I'm watching your socials. You've been playing around with some thermal stuff. Do you want to tell us how that started and, and what are you using? I personally have used a few different brands. I don't know if Matt has, but it's definitely something we're looking into purchasing personally. So we'd like your advice. We kind of stumbled into it, really. It's um, it's a, uh, I think it's called Hick Micro, Hick Micro, Hick Micro, Hick, yeah, Hick Micro, and we've stumbled into it, and it's really, really good. It's it's kind of a game changer in the hunting industry, and it's 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 a little bit scary because nothing can hide from it. And we've had some awesome footage absolute awesome footage we stumbled across i was out on a property with my mate and we we're sitting on a hill and this boar and it was a quality boar too is walking straight towards us and um i i'd say silly things like that i say oh, oh there'll be a pig over this hill 
And he gets up the top of the hill and says, look at this peak coming up the hill. And I said, yeah, I told you. You know, it's only for the fact that I'm just playing on his, yeah, his naive that uh, he was on my property and I was just trying to ham it up a little bit. And anyway, it's as clear as day. And it's somewhere on the socials that I've put it and this pig is walking up. We've shot it and it's rolled down the hill and you can see the blood just pouring out of its throat. It's actually a really, really good bit of footage. It's crazy. And this thing's a game changer. I could not believe the the quality of the image in these. And I'm thinking, wow. But you kind of think to yourself, well, is this going to change hunting? Will there be any animals left to hunt if everyone gets hold of one of these things? But then is it any different to will there be any fish left if everyone gets a fish finder or is it if everyone gets, you know, a boat with a fish finder in it and that sort of thing? So... Um, yeah, you know, that's that's how it is. It's it's like that. Yeah, it's a game changer, definitely, but we'll see where it goes from here. I've got two things on that. So firstly, in a previous podcast I mentioned I've been reading some of the news over from WA where they were looking at banning fishing for both commercial and recreational fishermen in certain areas. Yeah. And that was for, look, I said for multiple years because I believe I read three years. Can you fill us in on that? Uh, I'm not 100% about it, but, you know, they are. Yeah, they, they are. They're, they're, they're having a good crack at it. They are. And I think it's just coming to play now. Um, they're doing a lot in the Northwest where they're banning uh, demersal fish and, yeah, th- th- that sort of that in the fishing industry. And, um, it, yeah, it's. I haven't been following it as yet. I haven't been following it as best I should. But, um, yeah, we'll see where it's going to go from here. I think a green's got a lot to do with it. Yeah, all good. So when we're talking about thermals here, there was something that came out of the States. And uh, hold on, we've got a segment for this one, Jason. That's Media Watch. So overseas in the States, there was an issue in the last couple of weeks that using a thermal scope, a individual was killed because they were laying down in long grass and the person shooting thought they were a coyote and they pulled the trigger and found out that it was a person. So, look, we talk about identifying targets and things like that and you've spoken about thermals and I think they're a great piece of equipment and I'm dying to to get one myself. But how – I haven't used one in the field. How – accurate or how you've talked about using hick micro and i hear really good raps on hick micro how easy is it to identify targets and how confident were you using that piece of equipment i was very confident using it and it was i can't see when you say identifying targets i cannot see how someone would do that a long distance sure like a long distance, we've got a thing up on our um, Facebook page at the moment just showing people how to identify different uh, animals. And we've got cows at the top of the paddock, goats in the middle and rabbits down the bottom, and we've drawn lines underneath them so you can see the difference between all of them. And it can be very hard, but this is like this is like nearly a kilometre away. Like this is um, – we're showing the distance these can do it. When I say nearly a kilometre, I don't think it was a kilometre, but it was like probably 500 metres. And that's like pretty bloody good. If you're shooting someone like, you know, if you're shooting out to that distance, it's it's crazy. Like, as you said, identify your target. Exactly right. And I'm a keen gun safe. There's no, there's no messing around. When it comes to firearm safety, 
that's the sort of things that destroy my passion. I'm all for it. Eh? I'm all for gun safety. Yeah, and look, that image that you have up there with the three different lines, and I think there are different levels of the hill. It almost looks like on that image. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it's a really good one for people that haven't used the a thermal unit to be able to say, hey, okay, that's what it looks like. Again, I'm with you. I don't understand how that happens. So I'm guessing they've just seen the heat blip and sort of taken a shot. And we are talking over in the US. We're not talking here in Australia. But it is something to be mindful of. I think some people, you know, especially if you don't have access to that technology. I was talking to a contract shooter the other day and his opinion was that any night shooting should only take be taken under using a thermal either scope or at least a monocular to identify prior to using a, a night vision um, scope. I mean, that I see pros and cons in that because then I sort of go, they are very pricey and for the average shooter, that becomes an issue. And if we're talking about someone knocking over some pests on a property and, yeah, it becomes very, very difficult and tough in my opinion. That's a system we use at the moment. Like we've got um, – we've got – scopes but we walk around with the monoculars first so we're pretty much walking around the whole property in the dark absolutely pitch black and you're just walking around it or you could maybe you got a headlamp on for a little bit in some rocky country or you know country can't find and we're just walking around walking around the place with a monocular and it's like you see something and then you make it it's still a, a form of hunting you see something you you're not just going to see it and then start shooting you because you're with the night vision you can make your way towards that animal quite easily without it moving if the wind direction's fine you can start making your way towards it and it's really really as i said before and i'll say it again it's a game changer it is a game changer so you may be envious tonight because i haven't been over to perth much i have been over there uh, three times i think twice socially and once i did the shot show over there and i've got some guys phone numbers saved in my phone and it's literally like camel hunting perth rowan or donkey hunting Perth, just guys that I met at the show. And I never I never spent the time to follow those up. And I definitely, like you and I have been talking the last day or so about this camel hunt over there. And it's definitely exciting. I'm, I'm really looking forward to hopefully it coming off and then uh, being a repeat trip, a bit like your buffalo trip. Have you, have you got, would you put? I mean, he's that excited that he's wearing a blaze orange hat tonight uh, in his house. And a camo jacket. <laughs> You're probably the only one in the desert, mate, when you wear, you don't have to wear a blaze orange hat. So the There's chopper no can find me when I pass out of dehydration. <laughs> have you got a hunting experience or a hunting trip that you could easily put your finger on and say, that's the best one I've ever been on? And, and it could be for any reason, whether it's just a meat trip you went on or a trophy trip or your mate's trip to Darwin. Or, But I, I just I don't want you to name eight. I just want you to try and find one that you love. Yeah, look – not many go past the bear hunt because it's sitting on the wall, but all of them, like they've all, they're all memorable. Dodge. I don't think there's one I can put a hand to. It's not, it's not, but I've written stories in magazines about hunting trips, but one, this one, I went on a camel hunting trip in, um, this is up north of Western Australia. So a place called Newman uh, mining town. We were out of there uh, with a, with a mate and, we're out towards uh, Warburton Station, out in the middle of – we're in the middle of nowhere. We were – actually, this is desert country, in his car, 
and we pulled up and I'd shot a camel. Uh, he'd shot one as well. He'd shot one with a 300 and I'd shot one with a 4570. It was fairly close and um, it was stinking hot. Absolutely. This was, it was blistering. And I walked out and I started cutting the camel up. We've cut the back legs off and we're conveying the meat back to the car. So we had a couple of guys with us and uh, two of us had shot the, the animals. Uh, then we'll cut them up and the other two were just coming backwards and forwards to the car loading the loading the meat up. And we were in the middle of we we're in the middle of a desert and a carload of um these Aboriginal people um turned up. They were on the way to Newman, which was another it would have had to been probably five or six hours drive through the bush to get to Newman because we were in the middle of nowhere. And these guys were just pulled up um from a community somewhere. But they said to us, oh, um, and I can't remember the guy's name, really nice bloke. And he walked across there and said, hey, you know, what are you doing? We said, oh, we just shot a couple of camels. First thing we said, do you want some meat? Oh, I love some meat. So it was just a bond between uh, straight up a traditional owner and people who are hunting already just to say, hey, uh, kind of a thank you for letting us on there, but a more of a gesture of uh, a break down the barricade sort of thing. And he had a car full of um, people that he was going into a, a community meeting for in town. And it was more of a, you know, breaking down barriers, pulling down walls, saying, hey, guys, this is what we've done. You know, thanks for stopping. Thanks for having a chat to make sure we're okay. But here's a whole heap of meat to take with you um, for when you get back that night, when you get back to the community, you know, and, and just passing on passing on some of the meat. We couldn't – I don't think we could have used all the camel, the camels that we'd shot. So – it was good. It was kind of just sharing. It was reaching out to people, you know, and just sharing sharing what we had. And that's probably one of the most memorable hunts that I've been on in the fact that I didn't have to wait to cook it. It was just given – it was cutting the meat up to give to people and give to traditional owners, and it broke down a few barriers, you know. And firstly, it was, hey, what are you doing here? Because it's their land, end of the day. Uh, we're, we're up in their country and was just saying, oh, we're out hunting and that, and we had permission to hunt on that station. But, um, yeah, and then, then supply them with a whole heap of meat. We cut it all up for him and that, and he was it was awesome guy, you know, absolutely awesome bloke. So, yeah, it was good. It was good. And that was probably one of the best, most memorable hunts I've, I've had, and that was, a, that was a camel hunt, yeah. Yeah, it was good. Mate, do you have any rituals when you do take a life? I know I've spoken about it on a previous podcast or episode where I talk about I always like to just say thank you for that animal to give their life. It doesn't matter if it's something that I'm going to eat or something that I've just killed as a pest. Do you have something along those lines? Not as such. When you say a ritual, not as such. So um, I know in America, when I was in America, uh, I would hunt the bear and it was always their thing to put a bit of blood on your, I don't know, was it nose or whatever it was now, I can't remember it, and they'll put it on your forehead or something and they'd always do that. And they'd name, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad, Dodge, you know, we didn't, we didn't go all out the old, hold on a minute, I'll draw a, this Mona Lisa painting on your head and stay there for an hour with a stick or something. It wasn't that bad, but it was just a bit of blood on you. Um, that was their thing, and I'm like, yeah, I'm cool with that. Um, they also name their animals, like all their kills, they name them. And I, this is, what are you going to call it? You know, they always said to me, oh, what are you going to call your bear? I said, let's call it Aussie. <laughs> so you always remember it. And um that's what they do for me. You can call it a ritual. I don't know if it's more of a ritual. It's just what I do. But my real ritual is to take as much as I can of that meat, like have some respect for that animal that I've just shot 
and try and utilise as much as I can with it. Obviously, you can't. There's some stages you can't. Maybe the where you are or what you're doing, but. I don't honestly walk away, but hand on my heart, I don't honestly walk away from an animal and go, nah, I can't be bothered taking it. I'm just too f-ed. or what it, yeah, sorry for the swearing guys, but you know, I don't I don't walk away from something thinking I can't be bothered. If I couldn't be bothered, I shouldn't have done it in the first place. And I don't I don't specifically go out of my way just to go and kill something, to have it laying there going, Oh, well it was a pest anyway. Yeah, sure it was a pest. I get that it was a pest. And the farmer wanted it gone or whatever, but let's okay. If I can cut it up, and I'll take this one. If I can cut the other one up, I'll give it to the old mate farmer, or if he doesn't want, I'll give it to his neighbours, or you know, I'll, I'll I'll take it and give it to someone. And it's I don't know if it's called. Would you call that a ritual? I don't think it's a ritual as in in that respect. I think respect is the perfect word. I think that's just a respect thing. Yeah, it's a, it's more of. In that sort of circumstance, it's not really a ritual, but it's more of a. I have more of a respect for the animal, rather as rather than a ritual. A ritual is probably more than what people do. The respect is what what the animal wants. You know what? Yeah, I appreciate those honest comments. And I on the theme of being honest, I have in the past left animals behind. It's not something I do now, but it's definitely something I did at the start of my. I'm going to call it shooting journey, not hunting. It definitely changed oh, sure. pretty pretty quickly yeah. um, when I worked out the value of those things that you know I can provide for my friends and family and like you said you know any any protein is something you don't have to buy from the shop if you can put it on the table from a hunting trip that's a pretty major benefit so tonight you've mentioned and and I've touched on it a few times your socials and things if people wanted to to find Jace or to find Hunch Catch Cook where are they going to do that and how do they get in touch with you if they ever need to reach out at 2am in the morning to ask what time to put their pork on <laughs> oh definitely mate so um it's always yeah social social media is huge one so facebook page um i've got a facebook page and i've also got a facebook group so my facebook page is you watch me my facebook group is i watch you um and there's quite a few people i follow on my group um that put up uh you know there's eight thousand on there that put up their cooking and their little DVDs sometimes and bits of hunting and fishing and catching and cooking and, and whatever it may be, um, bits of banter and, and so forth, that's fine. Um, I don't really take a look at it too much because of the fact that I want other people to contribute to it. My social media page, Hunt, Catch, Cook, as in uh, me, uh, there's you know, a hell of a lot of people that watch it and I'm, I'm on it and I put, as I said, recipes could go up there. I, I kind of get a little bit embarrassed in the fact that uh, because I eat so much game meat, um, like I did buffalo meatloaf this morning with a poached egg on top of it, and that's breakfast, right? So That looked good too. I'm not going to lie. I showed the missus that and just went, uh, are you going to let me go up to the NT and shoot a buff? Because that looks great. <laughs> so I did that. I did that for my girlfriend. She absolutely loved it. She, I said, what do you want for breakfast? Poached egg. How do you want it? Oh, I don't know. Surprise me. Absolutely surprised. Blew her out of the water. That was pretty cool. So, um but that's what I do for breakfast, like, or if I've got the time on a Sunday, if I'm not in church myself, as in my church is hunting. So people, say, I always say that to people, hey, I'm in church because every Sunday I'm hunting. And if you're doing it every Sunday, it's got to be a church. If you love it so much, it's got to be church. So uh, I say that to people. Um, however, you know, for three, 
three meals a day, as I said, I sometimes get embarrassed like thinking, wow, am I just, just showing people too much bloody food? Uh, I, I won't get the likes on socials from it. You know, people can't follow me this much. It'll be like three times a day. I'm just f-ing eating game meat. Who wants to see every meal you eat? I don't know. So I try and mix it up with a little bit of hunting on, my, on that page anyway. And then I've got Instagram, which I yeah, periodically put different photos on and mess around with that. But it's it's mainly my my page Hunt Catch Cook and they can follow us on that. Yeah, I've got a little bit of stuff on YouTube, not a lot, uh, because I'm hopeless with a camera and absolutely useless useless with a computer, um, as you as you well know. So um, I have steered clear of YouTube as much as I can. Um, but yeah, love it on my on my socials. I yeah, my Facebook page. So I love showing people what I do. Also got the website, which is www.hunt hyphen catch hyphen cook.com is that correct yep so uh, a lot of info on my um thanks for mentioning that mate because i would have forgotten all about it so a lot of info that's what i'm here for yeah you're doing all right um a lot of info on my uh website in regards to what to look for eating uh game meat um you know what how do i how do i know my pigs are right to eat sort of thing a few little bits and pieces on it videos and yeah it's an old web page, um, but obviously you can order products off it and stuff. Um, you get in touch with us. Get in touch with me pretty easy. Uh, messenger on, on the social media side of things, I always answer that. So, um, But, yeah, web page, um, definitely if, you, if you're interested, have a look at the web page and if you can get um, value out of the web page, why not? And um, basically social media, I'm all over it. So it's good. Hey, that's fantastic. I've uh, learned a lot tonight. I've learnt that Dodge is valuable <laughs> as he knew your website. So thank you, Dodge. But uh... I was very nervous. Is it a is it hyphen? Is it I couldn't remember the name for that little dash between the words. <laughs> oh no, you just say you, you look it up, you'll just uncatch cook, you'll find it. But yeah, when you said Dodge is valuable, all of that two seconds he became valuable, mate. That, that was <laughs> it. And look, hey, no, props to Dodge. He's three Canadian clubs deep. I'm. Uh, he's got through this without slurring. Well done, mate. I'm impressed. It's good you're lifting your game. Love it. Uh, Jason, we really appreciate you joining us, mate. I am a massive fan of your page and I've learned a lot in the cooking side of things. And, you know, you are doing a great job out there helping people learn and discover more things, how to cook game meat. And I really appreciate it. And I'm sure many people do. If our listeners haven't seen your stuff, get over there. Like, it is fantastic. We l- really appreciate your time, mate. Thank you for joining us tonight. That's, it's been a great session. Really nice to meet you. And, yeah, keep doing what you're doing because it's a, it's a great service to our community, mate. So thank you again. Uh, boys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. I've absolutely enjoyed it. It's been a good laugh too. Um, yeah, thank you. Appreciate it, and I'll definitely have a listen. I'll share it on my socials too. But um, yeah, and good luck with it. As I say, podcasts are one of those things that just help get a what I see as a dying trade. That it's just help share it um, socially with people. And it's the more we talk about it, the more it becomes norm, and the more people accept it. And the more acceptance I have for hunting um, or gathering your own food. Um, the better it's going to be, the the longer longer it'll go on. So, yeah, congratulations to you boys too. Thank you. Thanks, Jace. Great to have you on. Look forward to catching up in the future. Cheers, mate. See you soon. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, guys, it's been a great episode. I've enjoyed it. hope you guys do too, and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now.
If you have a question for the team, shoot us an email. Our email address is theendlesspursuitpodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, jump on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. You can find us by using the at Hunting Journeys and Instagram. Find us on endless underscore pursuit underscore podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.